This week's Creepscast is sponsored by Upside. Download the free Upside app and use promo code MrCreeps to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. That's $5 or more cash back on your purchase of $10 or more using promo code MrCreeps. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. This week's stories are truly bone chilling and I hope that you enjoy them. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I was involved in a prison break, but I ended up somewhere worse. Written by 10 Minute Horror. I didn't believe the sentence when it was handed out by the judge. I couldn't. I had always believed one way or another justice would prevail, and false convictions were something of myths or legends. But now here I was, on the wrong side of one. The sound my wife just made while sitting in the benches behind me with our four-year-old daughter Scarlett will chill me until my last breath. Twenty-five years. Scarlett will almost be thirty by the time that I see her next. As a free man, anyway. How the heck did this happen? I went back over the night that caused this for the millionth time. I had been angry that day, sure. I'd always had a temper. That was what the prosecutors had keyed in on, and it worked out well for them. They marched in witnesses of all kinds with anecdotes and examples of my quick loss of composure during confrontations. They'd even used our neighbors. I couldn't argue against anything they were saying about my past. It was all true. Maybe a bit slanted, but I was quick to blow up on occasion, especially when it came to Scarlet. I had never felt protective over anything like I did the moment that she was born, and I saw how vulnerable she was. Scarlet had always been curious about her neighbor, Mr. Monahan. He was of the old guard, vending machine generation, but he was sweet on her. He would let her go over to visit and he would have some kind of treat or snack for her. One afternoon though, Scarlet came back crying. She had been drinking some lemonade but had dropped the glass and broke it on the floor. Monahan had spanked her. Jess and I had never laid a hand on her and weren't planning on it being any part of future punishments. Scarlet was just too sweet and never did anything wrong. When she told me what had happened, all I could see was red. I was overcome with rage and rushed over and confronted Monahan about it on his front lawn. It was heated, I won't say that it wasn't, but it wasn't physical. Either way, several neighbors had witnessed it and that was offered up as motive. On the stand, I explained what happened that night. I had calmed down and decided to go and speak to Monaghan a little after 9. When I got there, his back door was open so I entered and called out his name, asking if he was home. And then he stumbled out of the shadows and into me. He was covered in blood, a knife sticking out of his chest. I lost my balance and we collapsed on top of each other. I tried to help him, and I made the biggest mistake of all. I pulled the knife out of his chest. He immediately started bleeding out worse than he had already. But even more frightening, my fingerprints were now all over the murder weapon. Jess came in at that moment and saw the scene. If you ask her now, she'll say she knows in her heart of hearts that I didn't do it. But in that moment when she came in and saw Monaghan and I on the ground, covered in blood with a knife in my hand... I saw it in her eyes. She believed I had, and 
who could blame her? There had been a full investigation and a sweep of the house. No signs of forced entry, just me. No witnesses, just my word against their perceived version of reality. My lawyer filed an appeal immediately, but that was a Hail Mary, especially without any new evidence. 25 years. Everything after sentencing moved quickly. I was shuffled away before getting to say goodbye to Justin Scarlett. Before I knew it, I was chained to another inmate and a dozen of us were being loaded onto a reinforced prison transport bus to be taken to a max security facility. I was going to be bunking with the worst people in the state. The man, if you can call him that, I was chained to was named John Wheatley Jr. He was a filthy psycho with long, stringy hair who never stopped talking. I heard his whole story before the bus even left the courthouse. Him and his father had been into some really messed up stuff, terrorizing up and down the west coast, through northern California and up into Oregon. During a sting to catch the duo, John had been caught but his dad got away and he was somewhere out there. John seemed to have all the stats on everyone in the bus including me. He spoke about the two guys next to us. One was the tallest, largest black man that I had ever seen. He had to lean forward because his head rubbed against the ceiling while he was sitting down. His name was Don Richter, but people called him the Richter Scale. He was a dealer who had been given a bad batch and his mind had gone off the deep end. He took out everybody in his apartment building and stacked their bodies in the furnace room planning to burn them and the property before he was discovered. He was chained to a man named Colson Lang. Colson was a bit of a celebrity in the world of serial killers, apparently. He had been a BTK copycat. John said his IQ was off the charts, and he had been a software developer with a family of six at home. They had to change their name and move to a new state when Colson's extracurriculars were discovered. The bus finally started moving, and everyone got quiet, except for John. He was excited and had that orange crush, a stained smile. I don't think his teeth had ever been clean. It was a six-hour drive to the prison through stormy backcountry, and all he could think about was the judge handing me my sentence. Twenty-five years. There goes my life. I tried to sleep on the drive, but it was no use. I didn't think I would ever fall asleep again. John nudged me, getting my attention, and said to brace for impact. I had no idea what he meant. I opened my eyes and realized that we were now driving through old farmland, and a heavy storm had started. John was facing the rear of the bus, his back pressed up against the seat in front of us. He told me to brace again. At that moment, I looked ahead. The two police cruisers that were escorting us suddenly spun out of control and went off the road, like their tires had gone out. Then our own tires blew out and the bus flipped and barrel rolled into a ravine. I blacked out but was awoken by gunfire and John yelling for me to get up. We had been dislodged from our anchor points on the bus but still chained together and John was pulling me towards the rear doors. Richter and Colson, still chained together, were following our lead. The back door of the bus was bent in, but Richter used his shoulders and broke it outwards. Gunfire outside the bus continued to spray, lining the ceiling with holes. John pulled me out of the bus and was trying to look around at the front, 
but the storm was raging too hard. It sounded like there was a shootout between the one or two remaining officers and someone else. And then I heard John yell the word, Dad, and it made sense. His dad had orchestrated a transport intercept to get his son out, and now we were a part of it. And bullets were spraying everywhere and we couldn't see what was happening from down where we were. Richter and Colson started booking it towards a large, dying cornfield. John, upset from abandoning his father, grabbed me and told me to run. I was operating on pure adrenaline and felt concussed from the accident. It wasn't immediately obvious to me what I was doing, and how guilty it made me look to run. I tried to stop, but John yanked me forward and said he would kill me if I didn't hurry as fast as I could. I knew the further that I ran, the longer my sentence would go. But in that moment, I was too terrified to stop. What was waiting for me in prison anyway? Claustrophobia or something worse. Colson led us into the woods beyond the cornfield, and we found ourselves following a stream for a mile or two. When we came out on the other side of the woods and found ourselves in a large clearing, there was an old farmhouse ahead. It looked huge and out of place, run down and forgotten. And that's where we were headed. As we got closer, my fear grew more and more. What was I doing with these three maniacs? When we got to the house and above the threshold, the words Pickaway House were carved into a frame. We pushed the door open and entered. The house appeared abandoned. Colson gave directions that we needed to find tools to break the chains, clothes to change into and weapons if we could. Quickly, we found a hammer and an axe. We broke the chains and the three of them rushed upstairs to look for clothing or weapons. I grabbed an iron poker from the fireplace and managed to pry the cuffs from my wrist. Finally, with a moment to myself, I sat down by the window to catch my breath. I started to think about Jess. I wonder what she was doing right now. How long until the news picked up on this? How long until she found out that I was a part of a jailbreak? One that I didn't even want to be a part of. The idea of running back to the bus came to me. But what if I got back and these three got taken later? We would all end up back in the same jail and they would know that I ran on them. They would undoubtedly make my jail experience far worse and I didn't know what to do. Then I saw the tree line with dozens of agents holding flashlights and moving through the woods and into the clearing. It was both a relief and a horror to see them. Now I didn't need to run, but this could also turn out really bad. What if there is a standoff? What if John, Richter, and Colson find guns upstairs? And then I heard John yell out. He was upstairs, looking out the window and saw the search party entering the clearing and approaching the farmhouse. And the three men rushed downstairs, still in their orange jumpsuits. Richter and John freaked out, but Colson kept his head. I could tell that he was very cerebral. He was formulating a plan. We were all going to go into the basement and hide. As the search party entered, we would take one officer out at a time, strip them and wear their uniforms, and then we would rejoin the search party in their place and split up, and go in our separate ways from there. It was a pretty good plan. For them, anyway, I wanted to be no part of it, but I kept remembering. If I backstab them, we all end up back in prison. They'll kill me. Or worse. So I kept my mouth shut and decided to follow whatever they said. 
but we couldn't get the basement door open. It was solid. Not even Richter could pull it off or break it down. Colson ordered us upstairs where we would hide in one of the rooms. I followed them up and saw the second floor for the first time. There were four bedrooms all empty. We piled into the closet in the master bedroom, the plan staying the same. I couldn't imagine us surviving this. I imagined the cops turning the corner, seeing us crammed into the closet and opening fire. I mean, why wouldn't they? They probably thought we were responsible for the deaths of all the cops in the transport. What a horrible feeling, thinking that I'd be dying in some strange closet with these monsters. But minutes were passing and we hadn't heard anyone come into the farmhouse. Were they setting up a perimeter, formulating their own plan, knowing that we were likely hiding inside? A few more minutes passed and Colson decided to look outside. And that's when everything became really strange. The search party had walked right past the farmhouse. They hadn't come in and checked or anything. In fact, as I looked out the window and watched them, it seemed like they didn't even see the farmhouse. Like they looked either right past it or right through it. And we watched as the officers and agents continued across the field. They set up a large search party headquarters a few hundred yards away. More and more officers and agents arrived. Were they waiting for the army to show up? The storm was still raging and the day was descending into dusk. We moved downstairs and watched the search party. They had spread out all over the county it looked like. I could even see them going into other farms in the far distance and searching through them but finding nothing. It dawned on John that as long as we stayed inside the farmhouse, the search party wouldn't be able to find us. We just needed to stay here inside until they passed fully. Then we could make our run for it. John and Richter were thrilled with this. It was clear they weren't the slightest bit worried about why no one had come in to find us, or had they even been able to see the farmhouse. I shouldn't have been surprised that they weren't worried. Anywhere was better than prison for these guys. I could tell that Colson's mind was running though, trying to make sense of it, as was I. But there was no sense. Either the search party didn't want to come in or they flat out didn't see the house. Either option was frightening and I wanted out. I hatched a plan to try to sneak away that night when the others were asleep. I could get to an officer and explain what happened. Tell him where the others were hiding. It might sound crazy but this was all crazy. Since the arrest everything felt like a nightmare had spilled into my reality. An hour later, it was pitch black out, and the storm had only gotten worse. We couldn't even see the search party anymore, outside of their dim headlights through the rain. John hadn't stopped talking, and was more or less celebrating that we were safe and clear. Though he was nervous, his father had been killed in the shootout, and he was cursing himself for running off after the bus flip. Colson was quiet. I could tell that he was taking it all in from different angles. He went upstairs and John followed shortly later. I stared out the window in the living room, watching the storm coming down and thinking about Jess and Scarlett. My played out scenarios in my head were one night I show up at home, and we get all of our money and make a run for the border, and we raise our daughter in Mexico. 
It was a crazy idea, but I figured I was looking at an additional 10 years now for being dragged along in this stunt. So, it was either 35 years minimum behind bars, or make a run for it. I had a lot to think about tonight. Not to mention the fact that there was something wrong with this farmhouse, and I had a disturbing feeling that when we tried to leave in the morning, it wouldn't be as simple as walking out the front door. I turned away from the window and was startled by Richter. He was standing in front of the basement door fixated on it. He made me so uneasy. He easily had over 200 pounds on me, most of which was raw animal muscle. Andy was about six inches taller than me, and the last person that I wanted to be alone in a room with for more than a second. At least his attention was on the door for now. My adrenaline rush was finally starting to drop and I felt sleep coming on. I tried to stay awake but it was useless. I fell into a deep, nightmarish slumber. It was filled with horrors but none worse than the last one, the one that rang true. I had gotten to Jess and Scarlett, sneaking home one night and I asked them to run with me. Jess had said no. Hearing that word, it gave me more pain than any I'd ever felt, awake or asleep. I woke up as a roar of thunder shook the farmhouse, but I could have sworn that I heard a scream layered in with it. I took in my surroundings quickly and realized that I was alone in the living room. Face pressed against the window as the storm continued to rage. Aside from being alone, only one thing seemed different from before when I fell asleep. The basement door was wide open. I picked up my fire poker and approached the doorway. I looked down and despite it being dark, I could see a shape standing at the bottom of the stairs. The shape was so large that it was undeniably richer, but he was trembling. I could see his breath even from up here. I backed away, thinking about shutting the door and locking him down there but figured I didn't need to give him any reason to try to kill me. I moved into the kitchen instead, and decided to sneak out the back door. Now was the time to take my chance at running. I'd go to the cops and tell them what I could. However, the cards dropped from there, I would have to live with it. But the kitchen door wouldn't budge. The knob wouldn't even turn. I was frozen into place. I fumbled with it, trying to assess whether it was jammed or stuck, but it felt like I was trying to move a part of the wall. There was no give at all. I thought about breaking the window but knew that would be too loud. So I took a rag, wrapped it around my fist, and gently pressed it against one of the kitchen window panes. It wasn't budging either. I tried to apply more and more pressure, very slowly so it would cause the glass to crack but not shatter but again it felt like I was pushing against the house itself. We were trapped inside, at least on the first floor. Maybe I could find a breakable window upstairs. I wasn't crazy about the idea as I didn't know where John or Colson were and what they might do if they found me alone. I didn't trust anyone here. I didn't even trust the house. Maybe it was paranoid, but they were violent criminals. What was one more murder during a prison break? I nervously carried my fire poker upstairs, but found the hallway had changed since I had first come up here when we had arrived. The hall had gotten longer and now had four doors on each side and one at the end. 
I remember there was only four in total before her, but somehow they had doubled. Had I misremembered it the first time? I walked forward, passing the first two doors. Neither of them had windows. They were both covered in wood panel walls. I knew that wasn't right. I had seen windows in them earlier. I continued on and found all eight doors led to more rooms without windows. The final door led to a room that was filled with stacks of newspapers and a window on the far wall. I went to the window and I looked out. The search party appeared to be moving away as the storm was getting heavier. I tried to press against the glass again, but it wouldn't budge. It might as well have been just cement. My attention turned to the shortest stack of newspapers which was right beside me. It was spanning back decades and even a century. The headlines were for a serial killer had been arrested, but who had escaped prison and disappeared. And the next one was for a mass murderer who had gotten away during a police pursuit and was now missing after a baffling disappearance. And then another. But this one had John Wheatley Jr. on the cover. It spoke of him and his exploits. And I flipped it over. The next one terrified me. It was a newspaper that had it next week's date on it, but looked like it had been here for nearly 50 years, just like the rest of them. It spoke of the prison transport bus being intercepted by John Wheatley Sr., who had died in the ensuing shootout, and of the convicts that had managed to escape and had not been found. There was my name and my face. I backed away, not wanting to read anymore, but went right into another pile, knocking it over. The pile spilled across the floor, headlines filled with articles on killers and other people disappearing. Large manhunts spreading across states, even the country, but never seen again. And my name and face was there, scattered amongst them. I got to the door but found the hallway was gone. I had to catch myself against the doorframe, because I didn't see the floor and it was now stairs, ones that led directly to the basement. Somehow I was standing over the basement stairs. The doorway out to the hallway was now a doorway down. At the bottom of the stairs was John Colson and Richter. They were staring up at me, waiting. I tried to step back but found the room was gone now. There was nothing but a wall at my back and it was pushing me forward down the stairs to the others. The lone bulb overhead dimmed out and I lost my balance, toppling forward. I prepared to feel the hard stairs crack against my body, but they never did. I fell into darkness and just kept going. My mind started to move too fast and I couldn't keep up with my thoughts as I fell through weightlessness. My temperature shot up like a fever had gone from 0 to 100 in under a second. Brief aggressive flashes of my life began assaulting the inside of my eyelids. The road rage, the drunk nights out that resulted in fights. All the more destructive parts of my life, fused together in one frightening reel. There were things that I felt bad for, even really bad, and things that I felt I had handled the right way, even if they'd be viewed as excessive by some. But now, like this, everything felt horrid. I felt the weight of every poor decision, every attempted justification for my actions. The last flourish of memories was from that afternoon with Monahan. The argument on his front lawn, the anger that I felt, how I very nearly hit him right there. 
My fist was clenched and I was ready to, but I held back. Then, it was him on the kitchen floor in my arms. The last breath of life draining from him, but nothing in between. The memory flashed out and my eyes opened. I was laying in dirt and it was cold and wet. I got up and realized that I was in the basement at the bottom of the stairs. It was so dark, the only light coming from the open doorway above. I couldn't tell if the room was 20 feet wide or perhaps 20 miles. There was a series of low thuds coming from somewhere upstairs. It was methodical like a metronome. I managed to get myself up the stairs and the headache that I had from the memory flood slowly subsiding. On the first floor, I followed the low thuds to the front door and found something that flipped my stomach. John was on his knees at the front door, a horrific croaking sound coming from him. He was banging his face and hands into the door repeatedly. As I got closer, I saw his face had been mashed in and his fists had been beaten down to bloody stubs. The door was covered in the smears left over from John's face and hands. I can't imagine how someone could still be operating their motor functions in the state. And then John stopped and he turned and faced me. And I saw his eyes were smashed in as well. But he acted like he was looking at me. A grin crept across his lipless mouth. He sputtered out the words. There's no way out. And then he lunged at me. I fell backwards onto the stairs up to the second floor. I swung the fire poker and cracked John in the head. He hit the ground hard but was back up and crawling towards me in no time. I rushed up the stairs. But found the hallway was even longer now, with dozens of doorways on each side. John was crawling his way up the stairs and I could hear other footsteps moving through the living room and the kitchen below. There were other people down there. I rushed down the second floor hall, not knowing where I was going, but knowing that I needed to find somewhere safer than I was. But as I went, I realized the doorways didn't lead to other rooms. They led to more hallways with more doorways and more hallways into more doorways. They seemed to just keep going. Where the heck was I? What was this place? Doorways and passages leading to more rooms. Staircases on the ceiling that led into basements above me. Or were they below me? Was I upside down? I looked down and realized that I was now walking on the ceiling. But then it was the floor again. I felt like my brain was swimming and I got nauseous. I stumbled past windows. Some of them looked out into endless fields with electric storms scorching the horizon. While others were more personal. One of the windows looked in on my living room at home. I could see Jess and Scarlett on the couch watching the news. My face was on the screen among the other three escapees. Tears were streaming down my wife's cheeks. Scarlett was crying too. She probably didn't really understand, but maybe she did. I saw shadows darting between doorways, footsteps creaking from above, below, and all around. Something was chasing me from all sides. Some things. And then I could hear that unsettling croaking sound John was making when he was destroying his face and hands. Colson's voice called out from a different direction, asking what I thought of the house. All I could think of was this place like some kind of mousetrap for people like us, like them. It appeared as a safe haven from our futures, a mirage like a piece of cheese. 
distracting us from its surprises and weight. But if that was the case, why was I here? Was it accidental? Or did I actually belong here? Or the worst of all, had I actually committed the crime? Had I killed Monaghan in the blackout rage and repressed it? It was a thought that I had kept as far away as I could manage through all of this, but it was feeling more real. I turned down a new hallway, my will deteriorating as I heard the footsteps gaining. I ran into a new room, this one long and filled with varying sized frames with different mugshots in each. There were hundreds of them lining on the walls. I saw John's, Coulson's, and Richter's in a row at the end, but not mine. Mine wasn't there. I peeked in through the doorway in the hallway and saw three frightening yellow beams were piercing in from it like a series of flashlights. The source of light appeared. It was from Coulson. He had been decapitated and was holding his severed head out in front of him. A yellow light pouring from his eyes and mouth like a grotesque lantern. He was calling my name from his severed head. I ducked out of the doorway and rushed down a hallway leading into another room, but found John stumbling through it. Half his head had been ground down to brain, and his nubs had sharpened bones peering out. Somehow, I knew he could see me. The croaking came from somewhere at the back of his mangled throat. It screamed out, Me's in here. I turned to sprint through a new door but found the way blocked by a large mountain of a man. He was glistening in the darkness and had to duck under the frame to enter. Colson appeared from another doorway and was bathed in the yellow light from his lantern head. He smiled and pointed the light to the doorway with the large, framed man. It was Richter. He had been skinned, veins and ligament remaining. He walked through the door towards me. They all did. I backed up but found myself against the wall. The framed mugshots were covering it, and several fell to the ground. I was surrounded by the three destroyed men and was quickly realizing that I would soon be joining them in my own frightening state. What would they do to me? What would I become here? I held out the fire poker ready to start swinging. Colson said that wouldn't work here. This house didn't exist by our rules, but I would come to know them well. I didn't care though. I raised the fire poker like a baseball bat and they rushed in. As they leapt towards me, I felt a change inside. An overwhelming sense of calm took over like I was being protected somehow by something. I shut my eyes and I dropped the fire poker, knowing that swinging it or committing any act of violence wouldn't save me anymore, if it ever could. But the men didn't hit me. Nothing did. I opened my eyes and realized that I was back on the floor by the window in the living room of the farmhouse. Colson, John, and Richter were scattered through the room, asleep peacefully on the ground. They were in their orange jumpsuits and appeared to be completely normal and unhurt. And then the front door creaked open. The rain pattering outside drifted in. I quietly got up, trying not to wake the three. The door was swinging gently from the wind. Rain was coming down sideways into, into the entrance. I walked to the doorway and I looked back. The three men were still asleep. This was my chance and if anything I just saw was a prediction of coming events, I knew that I had to take it. I walked out the front door. 
But as I did, my vision went blurry and overly saturated, like it had been hijacked by some pirated station. I can't say why or how, but it was some kind of reverie, a vision from the night of Monahan's death. It started with Jess and I in our living room mid-conversation. She was trying to convince me to go over and to apologize to Monahan, or at least smooth out what had happened earlier. But then all of a sudden, I saw inside of Monahan's house. He was in his own living room, but he wasn't alone. There was a young man in there with him. It was clear the man was a junkie. They were arguing heavily. Parts of the conversation floated through my psyche. The young man was Monahan's grandson and had been on the streets for over a year. He had gone by with little bits of support here and there, but had become increasingly reliant on crime. Tonight, being in a particularly bad way and needing more than usual, the grandson was denied money by his grandfather for the last time. An argument erupted, which turned into a full-blown confrontation in the kitchen. And while I was being convinced to go over to apologize, Monahan was being killed. His grandson. It had been his grandson the whole time. And with that, my foot landed outside the farmhouse and rain hit my face. I was outside and I looked to the right, where there was open forest and a clear path to escape. I looked left and there was the search party, a few hundred feet away but blurry from the storm. The thought of continuing to run flashed through my mind, making my way back home to Jess and Scarlett and getting us into Mexico, or further south. It was a fleeting thought though and was gone before it came. I ran left, going for the closest cruiser. I had my hands up and open as I approached and within seconds I was arrested. I was thrown into the back of the car and looked to where I had came from. There was just an empty plot of land. The pickaway house was gone. And there were lots of interviews and interrogations after that. I made up a simple story that I had been dragged along by John and the other two, and we had been hiding in a creek nearby. I was scared of them, so I went along with them. They had found tools, and we had managed to get unhooked from each other. The first chance I got, I ran for the search party. It played well enough. It wasn't the truth, but somehow it was more realistic than the truth. I had a discovery hearing with the Department of Corrections. It appeared to be more about me than about John, Colson, or Richter. They wanted to know why I came back. Why didn't I keep running with the others? I told them because I wasn't like those men. I had always believed in our justice system. But in a recent instance, that belief had been shaken after it made a terrible mistake. I told them that I wanted to one day be able to legally walk my daughter down the street, take her out for ice cream, a movie, be a part of the family that she would eventually start. And though I was facing an almost impossible uphill battle on the potential of decades inside a prison, if I ran, I would never get the chance to have that with Scarlett. I would just always be running. I didn't want that. I was ready to stop fighting physically and to start fighting the right way, starting here and now. With some new information I had recently uncovered about who actually killed Monahan. Recently, I've had some not so pleasant experiences at the gas pump, 
just sort of gritting my teeth as I watch the amount keep rising. I'm sure you can all relate. Inflation is hitting us all where it really hurts and dang does it hurt. But recently I learned about a simple app that can help ease the pain a little bit. Upside. Upside is an incredible application for anyone who buys gas, groceries, or dines out. With every purchase, I'm earning cash back thanks to Upside. I've been trying not to eat out as much because I've noticed how prices keep steadily creeping up over time. But when I'm getting cash back with Upside, it really helps me justify having a night out for myself every once in a while. And it's so simple too. You just claim an offer for whatever you're buying on Upside. Check it in at the business. Pay as you usually would with a credit or debit card and then get cash back. It sounds too good to be true, but I've used it and this thing really works. Download the free Upside app and use promo code MrCreeps to get 5 bucks or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. That's $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more using promo code MrCreeps. I used to be a park ranger, and even I don't believe the horror that I found in those woods. Written by Horror Writer 1717. I'm posting this as a warning. There are things out there that you don't want to know about. Stay away from them. Don't go looking for them. I'll tell you my story in hopes that it will quench your curiosity. It was a night like any other night, at least lately. I had barely arrived at the ranger station and there were already four calls of vacationers' homes getting broken into. Out here in the West Virginia Wildlife Preserve, people tend to think that just because they plant some houses, that the animals should somehow know and respect boundaries. That's kind of tough when the animals are on a huge plot of land, where they've never been hunted and never ever been threatened by anything other than a bigger animal. But folks seem to think this is a great vacation spot for them. What they don't realize is that it's also a great vacation spot for the animals. I opt in the company truck and started towards my first destination of the night. An elderly couple had been terrorized by a deer that literally broke in through a sliding glass door. And they managed to trap it in a side room and needed someone to go release it. So I got elected. When I got there, the vacationers looked like the ones caught in headlights. They were still wide-eyed. I could tell that they were in shock. I had them go into another room and close the door. Once they were out of the way, I found the closest door to the outside and I opened it. Then I went to the room with the deer in it. I slowly opened the door and was shocked to find the room covered in blood. The deer was laying on the floor panting. I approached it slowly, circling around to leave the doorway open, hoping to give it an escape route. The closer I got, the more I realized that this deer wasn't going anywhere. Its side was covered with claw marks. At first, I thought a coyote had attacked it, but the marks were too far apart. They were large enough to be caused by a bear, but the individual claws were too far apart. I had never seen anything like it. If I had to compare it to something, I would say that Freddy Krueger had sliced it up. The deer's eyes went wide when I approached it, but it didn't jump up and run. I took this as a bad sign. 
Mitt's breath came in ragged gasps as I struggled to roll it over. Once I did, I was my turn to struggle breathing. Its entire side was torn to shreds, but that wasn't the worst part. There were large chunks that were missing. I examined the wounds and found bite marks where the missing flesh should have been, but the bites were massive. If it wouldn't have challenged the laws of nature as well as my own sanity, I would have said that it was bitten by a shark. Red poured out of the side and the deer struggled to draw breath. I stood and left the room, leaving the poor creature the dignity of a private death. When I went back in, it was still. I took pictures with my cell phone and tried my best to carry the creature out without making more of a mess. After I got it loaded on the back of my truck, I went back inside and talked to the vacationers. When I opened the door to the room they were in, the woman's eyes grew wide and she had started screaming. The man's eyes were the size of saucers as well. I approached them slowly with my arms outstretched to try and calm them down. It seemed to have the opposite effect. They started climbing the furniture and clawing at the walls to get away from me. I decided to back away and give them some room. What's wrong? I said. The man pointed a shaky finger at me. You, you're covered in blood, he said. The deer got you, the woman said. You've got rabies. Or worse, the man said, keeping his distance. I'm sorry, folks, I said. This is the deer's blood. You killed it just for breaking in, the woman said. What? No, it was already injured. I only took it to my truck. The couple seemed to settle down and consider this. So you don't have rabies, the man said, slowly looking me up and down. Or anything else, the woman said hiding behind her husband. No, ma'am, I'm fine. She took her turn, eyeing me up and down, I assumed, looking for any wounds. Being satisfied, they asked the one question I didn't want to answer. So what killed the deer? The man said. I really don't know, I said truthfully. Having just gotten them calmed down, I didn't want to send them back into a panic. It was probably just a coyote, I said. A coyote? The man said, diving back into the pool of panic. Or a bear, I said, trying and failing to calm them. A bear, the woman said, diving in after her husband. You know, folks, you've had a traumatic night, I said. I can't tell you what to do, but if I were you, I would. We're leaving, the woman said, dragging her husband out of the room. That sounds like a good idea, I said. And then like an idiot, I added, I hope you enjoyed your stay. They either didn't hear me or they ignored me. Either way, it wasn't long until I heard a car start up and then roar away from the house. I went back into the room where the deer had been trapped and I started working backwards from there, trying to find out what had happened. It wasn't hard to pick up the trail. It had been bleeding pretty badly. Seeing the bites and claw marks made that fairly obvious too. I tracked it back through the kitchen and out the smashed glass door. Once outside, I turned on my flashlight. 
The trail was a little harder to follow, but not much. I could still see drops of red beside its tracks as I followed them back towards the pond behind the house. I approached the pond and saw signs of a struggle. This must have been where the deer was attacked at. There were other tracks in with the deers, but they didn't make any sense to me. They were large. Too large. Their shapes were odd as well. If I had to call them anything, I would have called them duck prints, but massive, larger than any duck by many times. A giant duck with shark teeth. I think I'll leave that out of my report, I thought. It suddenly struck me what the tracks were. It was a man with swim fins on his feet. But why? Why go to all that trouble to poach a deer when you can just knock it out with a tranquilizer gun? My mind sent me an answer, but I didn't like it. What if the man is a psychopath, just getting his kicks by killing an animal with his bare hands? I thought about the mental hospital in the neighboring county and wondered if one of the patients had taken an unsanctioned leave of absence and they were trying to keep it quiet. I didn't like that thought one bit. Aside from the fact that it didn't explain the huge bites in the deer, it also meant that we had someone who might suddenly get a taste for killing. Doing this to animals was horrible, but what if he decided to go after something bigger? I shot a look at the house wondering how many vacationers were within a short walk from the spot and how many were armed. As I contemplated the safety of the people in the area, I heard something behind me. I whipped around and shone my light but saw nothing. I scanned the pond and saw a ripple emanating from the middle, probably just a fish jumping. I took some more pictures of the struggle area with my phone and then started back toward my truck. I had more calls to answer and this riddle would have to wait. I drove halfway around the lake around three miles to the other vacation home where a break-in had been reported. When the woman in her thirties answered the door, she took a step back. Oh my, she said, looking at the dried blood all over my uniform. Good evening, ma'am. Sorry about my appearance, I said. Did you happen to report a break-in? Yes, we did. Please come in. She said in a friendly tone, yet gave me a wide berth while closing the door. She led me upstairs to the kitchen. For some reason, I was expecting to find blood all over like with the last house. However, this was a completely different mess. She showed me the door. It had been forced open, but not shattered like the last one. There was only a small amount of glass broken. And then the door latch had been unlocked and the door slid open. There were faint images of the giant duck tracks like the last house. My spine turned to ice. This house was over three miles away from the other. There were many more people in that space that might have fallen victim to this crazed person. The woman showed me the rest of the kitchen and the mess that had been left. There were a few cans of sardines that had been opened and eaten and also some cans of tuna fish. The strange thing was how they were opened. The cans had been torn into with something sharp but not a can opener. The marks looked like they were torn open with claws. I shuddered to imagine the amount of strength it took to do something like that. 
and then I spotted it. Beside one of the cans of tuna was a small puddle of blood. Ma'am, could I trouble you for a sandwich bag? I said. She handed me one and I carefully tried to scrape as much of it into it as possible. I sealed it and put it in my pocket and then went out through the broken door. Behind the house, just like with most of these vacation houses, there is a pond. I traced the tracks back to it and they disappeared at the waterline. I shone my light over the water but the only thing I saw was a stray turtle. I stared at it for a long time though, as though it would somehow give me a clue as to what was going on. What should we do? The woman said nearly scaring me half to death. I hadn't heard her follow me out the door and into the yard. I'll send someone around to look at that door in the morning, I said. In the meantime, it might not be a bad idea to sleep in a room that has a lock on the door. I'm sure they won't be back, but just in case. She didn't seem very comforted by that idea, but thanked me as I left. The next two reports were just teenagers breaking in and stealing beer. That was it. No bloody wildlife, no weird tracks, just kids being kids. I went back to the station, changed down my uniform, and spent the rest of the night filling out reports on what had happened. When my shift was over and I passed on what had happened, I took a little trip to the neighboring county. I stopped in at the mental hospital and asked if they had any people escape lately. The nurse looked at me like I had asked her if she was wearing deodorant. We don't have escapes, she said with obvious pride that showed his arrogance. I thanked her and left, feeling less than satisfied with her answer. Next, I stopped in at the local police department and asked one of my friends in the force if they could analyze the blood sample for me. I shared my thoughts that there might be an escapee from the mental hospital, and the blood sample might help us find out who and track him down. It was well past noon until I got to bed. That night, when I got to work, it was pandemonium. There had been more break-ins and people were starting to panic. The owner of the resort was frantic. People were canceling left and right and wanting their money back. When I walked in, he stormed his pudgy face right up into mine. You told people to go home. He fumed, glaring up at me. I merely suggested, Do you want to pay the rental out of your salary? I work for the state, not you, I said. He turned a deeper shade of red. Would you rather see people in body bags instead of animals? I said. That wouldn't do much for business, now would it? He turned a fire engine red and stormed out mumbling. We'll see. I investigated five break-ins that night. Only two of them were legit. The rest seemed like half-hearted attempts to stage a break-in, so they could get out of pain for their own rental. The two real ones shared the same characteristics as before. Just enough of a broken window to open the door. The cans of whatever seafood was available. They even got shrimp out of the freezer. Everything about the way the intruder acted pointed to a person. All I needed to know was who. Again, I followed the tracks back to the nearby pond. I stood for a long time studying the surface of the water. I knew these ponds were all designed the same. A rough 40 yard by 40 yard body of water around 5 feet deep in the middle. Stocked with mostly bluegill for catch and release fishing. 
Anybody using these pots to hide would have to be holding their breath for inhuman periods of time. I stared at the surface for 20 minutes. If somebody was out there, they had an invisible snorkel or an extra set of lungs. After my rounds of investigating and reporting, I decided to stick around and do a little extra investigating. I ran home and grabbed my swim trunks, a mask, and a snorkel, and went to the site of the most recent break-in. I waded out into the water, unsure of what I would find when a snake slithered past me. I let it go and waded deep enough to where I could swim. I hovered at the level of the surface, dipping my mask underneath to get a glimpse of whatever there was to see. There wasn't much. Fish, underwater plants, and lots of water. Just what you would expect from a pond. As I kept going towards the middle, the water kept getting deeper. I now couldn't touch the bottom, so I had to float on the surface. Looming in front of me was a dark spot at the bottom of the pond. I took it for a rock, but swam close enough to investigate anyway. And for a penny, and for a pound. As I drew close enough to hover over it, I realized it wasn't a rock. I took a deep breath and dove to find out what it really was. The further I swam down, the further I was able to swim down. I kept going and going. Light disappeared. I was sure that I had been swimming straight down for a solid minute without touching the bottom. I turned and looked up. The surface of the pond was only a pinprick of light. My lungs screamed at me to turn around. I had no choice but to comply. I clawed at the water in desperation. It seemed like I was swimming in mud or something was pulling me down. Almost like a force or a current pushing against me. Wanting me to drown before I could fully explore this hidden secret. After what felt like an eternity, I broke the surface of the water and I gasped for air. I swam over to the shallows and walked out of the pond. I collapsed on the shore and lay there for a long time trying to regain my breath. As my brain received oxygen, I thought about what had happened and if it had been real, an illusion, or if I had just gotten turned around somehow and stuck at the bottom. I had to find out. I wasted no time driving two counties over and renting some dive equipment, along with a light. So armed, I returned to the pond and walked toward the middle again. This time, when I dove toward the dark spot, I was able to see exactly what it was. I used the flashlight to examine the darkness. As I swam deeper, the sides closed in on me as if I was swimming down the gullet of some massive fish. I've never been claustrophobic before, but that was rapidly changing. I barely had any room to maneuver as these sides closed in. I contemplated turning around, but there was no room. I could feel myself starting to panic. I had to focus to keep my breathing regular. I was very close to a panic attack when suddenly, the tunnel opened up again. The sides grew further apart and I checked my watch and I had been under for 15 minutes. The sides of the tunnel had spread out so far that they were barely visible and I could see a light ahead of me. I swam toward it, desperate to get out of this water. I broke through the surface and looked around. I was in the pond. 
Somehow, I'd gotten turned around and I was back in the pond. I swam to the side until I could stand and I walked out to the shore. Looking around, I made a startling discovery. I was in a pond, the same one as the break-in last night. Somehow, there was a hidden tunnel between the two ponds. That's how the robber never gets caught. He just swims to the next pond as slick as not. No fuss and no moss. I now knew the how, but I needed to know more. As tempting as it was to swim back through the tunnel, I was still a little shaken and didn't want to risk an underwater panic attack. I walked back to my truck, took off my dive equipment, and drove back to the dive shop. I asked about frequent customers, especially for refilling tanks. They told me that they had a few regulars that came in every weekend, but no one knew and no one who needed refills more than once a week. I asked if there were any other dive shops in the area, and they told me that the next closest one was over 100 miles away. I went home frustrated. It wasn't making sense. He would need air to swim back and forth through that tunnel, and that was his escape route, I was sure of it. I tried to sleep through the afternoon, but my mind wouldn't let me rest. It was working on the impossible puzzle of how the robber was getting air. I borrowed a couple of trail cams and set one up at each pond. I needed to see if he had some new tank system or what. I also wanted to identify him and shut him down fast. I made sure to stay away from those ponds that night so that he would feel free to do his thing. In the morning, I gathered the cameras and took them home. I downloaded both memory cards before watching the video. Just as the second download had finished, my phone rang. Hello? I said. Hey John, it's Steve. I got the results from that blood you gave me the other day. Great. I said hitting the play button on my computer. Were you able to get a match on any hospital records? Uh, not exactly. Why not? I asked as a ghostly green image appeared on my computer. The image was blurred, but it was definitely the size of a man walking upright toward the camera. I clicked to the next slide and froze at what I saw. Well, the thing is, the blood you gave me came back as reptile DNA. I registered the words he said on my mind, just like I had registered the image on my computer screen, but I just couldn't place them in reality. Are you there? He said into the phone. Yeah, I'm sorry, I said. Could you send a copy of your findings to my office? Sure, no problem. Thanks, I appreciate it. You really helped me figure this out. Anytime, he said cheerfully before hanging up. I hadn't taken my eyes off the computer screen the whole time. No matter how long I stared at it, I couldn't make my mind acknowledge that it was real. Standing there, large as life, was not a man in a wetsuit. It was a creature. I could see the wide mouth full of sharp teeth. That looked exactly like the bites on the deer. I could see the webbed feet that looked like swim fins. Only had claws sticking out of the front where toes would be. I saw the razor-sharp claws on its webbed hands. It was a full-on nightmare staring me in the face. I sat back and thought for a long time. And then I printed copies of the images and to put them in an envelope. 
I rushed to the station to share the information that I had with my fellow rangers. As I was showing them, their faces ranged in emotions from shock to disbelief to outright mocking. As I was going through my investigation, the owner of the timeshares had walked in. What are we all looking at? He said eyeing me with contempt. Well, it seems like John has solved the case of the break-ins, one of the other rangers said. The owner approached. He picked up the lab report and read it, and then stared for a long time at the picture. Do you know what this is? He said absently. I really don't know yet, I said. I've never seen anything like it. He turned to me and smiled. This is money, he said holding up the picture. What do you mean, I said. Those idiots that go around hunting, what do you call them? Cryptids? Yeah, cryptids. They'll pay through the nose if they think they can find something like this. And then there's the TV shows and the merchandising, he said. You may have saved my financial hide. He beamed at me. I don't think you understand, I said. This is a dangerous animal. If you had seen what it did to that deer. So, what do you want to do? Hunt it down and kill it. Maybe not kill it, but definitely tranquilize it and take it to a secure location where it can't hurt anyone. You idiot, he yelled. I could make a mint. I wouldn't even have to repair those houses. They would all rush in to investigate and leave piles of cash in my bank account. But what about the people? Who cares about the people, he said. Throw them all out. I've got the chance of a lifetime beating down my front door. And you want to flush it down the toilet because you're scared as someone might break a nail. He was breathing hard and staring up into my face. The air was charged with fury. His and mine. And then a sudden calm came over him. Charles, he said addressing the lead ranger. Isn't this a wildlife preserve? Oh, yes it is, Charles said warily. And aren't the wildlife on this preserve protected from all tampering by law? Well, I guess so, Charles said. What if those animals present a threat? I said to Charles. How many deer were killed by coyotes on this preserve last year? The owner said. And dozens, Charles said. Were the coyotes removed from the preserve? No, Charles said. The owner turned and shot me a triumphant look. John, Charles said. I know that you have everybody's best interests in mind, but you're going to have to let this go. I glared at him. And what happens when this thing decides that it likes to eat humans? All the eyes in the room that had been on me suddenly found somewhere else to look. All but the owner. He was smiling ear to ear. I think the pudgy little guy was about to break into a happy dance. I searched the room for any support, but I found none. I pulled my badge off my shirt, quietly laid it on the desk, and laughed. If that was the end of my story, I would say that I had failed. I took my pension and ran in one of the houses on the preserve. The owner had leaked through social media that a cryptid had been spotted on the preserve. As he had guessed, the cryptid hunters and TV crews came in droves, renting everything in sight. My goal was different, and I already knew that it existed. I knew it how it got around without being detected. I stayed at one of the breaking houses. Every night I took a huge tuna that I had bought fresh that morning and I laid it out beside the pond. 
I sat in the dark living room and watched the first night as it approached the fish with more caution than curiosity. After sniffing it for a long time, it grabbed it and dove for the pond. Each night after, I laid out a fish and the creature became less cautious. It was being fed and the media frenzy was starving. The hunters had found nothing. There were no sightings as long as I had fed it. Everyone had their cameras set up. The few that roamed around left me alone when they saw someone in the house. I guess they thought I was another cryptid hunter and respected my privacy. As the number of sightings stayed at zero, they started turning on the owner, calling him a fraud. His reputation had plummeted. After a week with no sightings, people started leaving. In desperation, he did the wrong thing. He hired an actor to dress in a creature suit and roam around. Of course, the hunters and shows saw right through this and destroyed what was left of his reputation. I had rented the house for two weeks. Between the rent and the fish, my money was running out. I had kept the people safe, but what would happen when I stopped feeding it? I had managed to clear out most of the people so they would be safe. But what about my fellow rangers? What would happen when it became desperate? When the starving creature no longer had houses full of food to break into, I had three more nights until I had to leave. I was out of money. The preserve had become a ghost town. As far as I knew, I was the only renter left. It was decision time. I was staring at the large tuna on the table with a bottle of bleach next to it. Let it live and see what happens or kill it. I thought about this for a long time. Both options had merits and consequences. I chose a third option, a much more dangerous one. I took the fish out and I laid it where I usually did and then backed up a few feet and stood there. Over an hour passed before the water stirred. I saw the head and eyes of the creature appear as it headed toward the fish. And then it stopped. It had seen me. I made sure to keep still with my arms at my side. It slowly approached and stood. It was a few feet away with the fish in between us. It studied me and sniffed the air and then became agitated. Perhaps it had smelled my scent before as a pursuer. It let out a soft hiss but bent down and took the fish, keeping its eyes on me the entire time. And then once it had had its meal, it did the most incredible physical display that I've ever seen. It leapt 20 feet in the air and landed in a perfect dive right in the middle of the pond, leaving almost no splash. I let out a breath I didn't realize I had been holding, and I collapsed to the ground shaking. Once I had recovered, I went back inside and I fell into a fitful sleep. That was only part of my plan. The next night would decide who lived and who died. I did exactly like the night before, minus the fish. The creature approached, stepped up to me and looked around for the fish. I showed him my empty hands. It sniffed at them and growled having smelled the scent of fish. It looked at my hands and I wondered if it was going to bite them off as a substitute. It hissed at me and sniffed my face. I saw it flexing its claws the whole time. I stared into its face, those massive, razor-sharp teeth, and swallowed hard. I did all I could do to stay still, 
to show it I wasn't a threat. And my heart hammered in my chest. It opened its jaws and showed me those horrible teeth. Its breath was a horrid stench I had never smelled and hoped to never again. I closed my eyes, not knowing if they would ever open. Seconds, I fell into minutes. I opened my eyes and I was alone. There wasn't even a ripple in the water. I sighed. My decision had been made. It had shown restraint and I would too. I went back inside, packed and left. I could only hope and pray that the people that remained, including my former co-workers, would be safe. I went home and slept restlessly. In the morning, there was a report in the newspaper on a break-in at the wildlife preserve. They said the only thing that was taken were cans of tuna fish. I smiled ruefully and wondered how long it would stay that way. If you're reading this, don't go looking for this thing. If you see it, don't tell others about it. Just to leave it alone and hope for the best. I was an inmate in an unnamed prison for two years. Something else was locked in there with us. Written by that XO guy. Back in the day, I used to be a piece of crap. The biggest loser that you could meet. Wasting the best years of my life on petty crimes and drugs as part of a group. While everyone else found decent work, married and started families, I started fights in bars while blackout drunk. It was only a matter of time before I messed up big time and faced serious charges, landing me 20 years to life behind bars. To the best of my knowledge, my case didn't make the news. Too many crazy things happened around the world at the time, so a small fry like myself didn't make the cut. Even so, I'll err on the side of caution and keep the details to myself. What I did isn't important. What matters for my story are the consequences I faced. I was arrested, tried, and found guilty. But the trial was fair. I won't lie to you or to myself. I didn't have money. I was already dead to my relatives, so when no one came to even see me, let alone help me. When my sentencing came, I was to be transferred to a maximum security prison. I expected a cop car when they dragged me out of the temporary cell and into the yard, but a black armored jeep waited for me instead. What's going on? I asked as they led me to it in handcuffs. What are you doing? Where are you taking me? My questions fell on deaf ears. The deputies handed me off to the mysterious man. Two muscular dudes in sharp suits with dark sunglasses covering their eyes. As they forced me into the jeep's back, every worst case scenario under the sun ran through my mind. Would I become part of some secret government experiment? Would they erase me from existence? Another poor fool lost in the bureaucratic shuffle. Would I see the light of day ever again? I couldn't tell them the two men wouldn't say. For the whole ten hour drive, they didn't speak a single word to me or to each other. I couldn't see anything through the tented windows. 
so I had no idea where they were even taking me. But truth be told, I was fighting some nasty withdrawals, so I couldn't focus much on it either. When we finally arrived at our destination and the ride stopped, one of them pulled me forcefully out of the jeep. I wasn't sure what to expect, but the buildings that we faced weren't it. Gray, naked concrete, bars for windows, a tall, protective concrete fence with guard towers. More or less a normal prison, not some top-secret facility. The two men led me inside through the gates and handed me to the guards. Then they turned around and they laughed. What's going on? I asked. Where am I? What will happen to me? The guard sighed, getting behind me and pushing me to move. You know what curiosity did to the cat? He answered my question with one of his own. I just nodded my head. Good. Now stop asking questions. He took me inside a small building to be processed, which meant ditching my standard jumpsuit for one of their own. A simple, dark, gray thing. Thought it was quite thick for a prison in the middle of the desert. The guard pulled out a pistol and motioned with the barrel towards me. Don't try anything funny, he warned. I nodded my head so he unlocked the cuffs. He didn't make me shower before changing and he sure as crap didn't offer me any privacy. I'd get buck naked in front of him as he watched me like an eagle. But soon enough, I was dressed in the gray jumpsuit, so the guard put the handcuffs back around my wrists and took me away once more. Not in the prison yard, I saw the other inmates loitering about. Most of them wore dark gray jumpsuits similar to my own but some wore a bright neon orange that made them stand out like sore thumbs in the crowd. At least we're allowed to get some fresh air, I thought. That over there is Block A, the guard said, pointing to the closest building. It was the tallest among the bunch, but other than that, they were pretty much identical. That's where you're going. That over there is Block B, he continued pointing to the next building in line. And that one in the back is Block C. Pray to God and try your best not to get sent there. I wanted to ask why, but held back the question as the earlier warning rang through my mind. The guard noticed, or at least I think he did, seeing as he gave me a wide grin after a few moments of silence. I was led into Block A, through a set of heavy metal doors that led into the ground floor. Inside the building looked strange, not at all what I expected from a modern prison. The space was opened, with metal stairs and catwalks crisscrossing every which way and cells aligning the walls. I could see the roof of the building clearly. There was nothing separating the floors. At any rate, up one of those flights of stairs we went, from the ground floor to the first floor, and then the second and finally to the third and last. As we ascended, I couldn't help but notice the strange design of said stairs. They shifted around beneath our steps. They had heavy hinges on at the upper parts, and they even had motors when they connected to the catwalks. I didn't know what to make of it. Here you are, 
the guard said as he stopped in front of a cell. Home sweet home. He uncuffed me again, and this time for good, and gave me a pat on the back before he left. I didn't know what to do, so I stood there frozen for a long moment, watching the guard disappear down the stairs. A man was already in the cell, lounging on one of the bunk beds with the door wide open. He shot me a quick glance and let out a sigh when he saw that I wouldn't talk. Hey, new guy, he called out. You can come in, I won't bite. What the heck is this place? I asked, stepping into the cell. First things first, introductions. He cut me off. The name's Andre. Jack. Nice to meet you, Jack. Andre answered. That over there is your bed. The one below yours is Christopher's and the one above mine is Mason's. I looked to the bunk beds as Andre lazily pointed towards them, finally noticing that there were four of them. Would I really share a cell with three other people? They're outside right now, but they should be back soon, Andre continued. You didn't answer me. Did Liam not give you the breakdown? Who's Liam? I asked. The guard that brought you here, Andre clarified. But that's not important. Did he not warn you? Curiosity killed the cat. Andre nodded his head. Yup. You better keep your mouth shut, Jackie boy. You never know who will hear you asking one too many questions. Whatever, I said, waving a hand through the air to dismiss Andre. I was tempted to go outside a bit as well, but I didn't. Instead, I laid down, feeling dizzy as a buzzing spread between my thoughts. My whole body ate and I felt exhausted all the way back. The withdrawals were really kicking my butt and I knew that they would only get worse for a while. I tried to sleep for a bit, but I was too restless for that, fidgeting with my hands in a vain attempt to distract myself. A while later, as the sun was setting, two more men came to the cell. The sounds of their footsteps and chatter made me turn in the bed to look, though I did so sluggishly as I felt my mind sloshing in my head. The first one entered absentmindedly, but the second one pulled the door shut and locked it from the inside with a key. Oh, hello there, the first one said, approaching the bunk below my own. Name's Christopher, but you can call me Chris. The other one stashed the key away in a pocket and went to his own bunk above Andre's. Mason, he said with obvious disinterest. Jack, I introduced myself. Nice to meet you, Jack, Chris said with a wide smile. I grunted and rubbed my temples, feeling like the top of my head was about to blow off. And Chris noticed, so he leaned closer. Withdrawals. Uh-huh. Alcohol, nicotine, opioids. He kept pestering me with questions. All the above and then some, I admitted. Ouch, you're in for a rough time. He stated the obvious. I could see that he was getting ready to ask something else, but he didn't get to. Andre stopped him. I let the man rest. Fine, fine, Chris said with a sheepish smile, rubbing the back of his head. Try and get some sleep. I'll wake you up when they serve dinner. 
They mostly kept silent after that, and Chris did keep his word. A short eternity later, he let me know that they were going downstairs to eat. I didn't manage to catch any shut-eye, and I didn't feel particularly hungry, so I didn't join them. They left me alone in the cell, door unlocked and swung wide open. I heard the commotion of everyone gathering up, walking around and talking, but I did my best to shut it all out. When they returned about an hour later, Chris handed me a bowl of something. Eat, he said before he got into his own bed. You'll need your strength. It won't get easier for a while. I appreciated the gesture, but I couldn't hold the food down. I had a few spoonfuls, but my stomach churned and brought it back up my throat. Mason locked the door again and they went to sleep. But I spent the night covered in cold sweat as I squirmed around in the uncomfortable bed. That's how I spent the beginning of my incarceration, about two weeks or so. Chris kept bringing me food and water, doing his best to take care of me. I wasn't afraid for my life. Withdrawals are rarely lethal, but truth be told, there were points when I would have preferred death. I didn't have a choice though, so I powered through it until these symptoms had started dying down. About three weeks later, I finally got my first night of proper sleep. How you feeling? Chris asked me when he woke me up for breakfast. A bit better. Will you join us today or do I have to bring your food again? I'll join, I said, getting up from the bed on wobbly legs. Andre and Mason were already gone, so Chris and I left as well. He kept next to me, ready to catch me in case I collapsed. I wasn't used to such kindness, and for it to come from a complete stranger left me even more perplexed. I didn't really know how to feel about it or how to act. Thanks, I mumbled as we started down the first flight of stairs. Chris shot me a confused look. Uh, for taking care of me. Oh, that, he answered. We gotta look out for each other here. No one else is gonna do it. Now that he mentioned it, I hadn't seen a single guard since I had arrived. I wasn't sure how prisons worked, but I expected the guards to at least check up on us semi-regularly. But looking down at the crowd gathering on the ground floor... All I saw were gray jumpsuits. Prisoners forming a long, winding line in front of a window, with no personnel in sight. This place is weird, I told Chris. You have no idea, man. We got in line as well when we had reached the ground floor, slowly advancing towards the window. A burly man was behind it with trays of food at the ready. The prisoners took one each before leaving, though I couldn't see any tables around to sit down at. And they either went back to their cells or outside, leaving me surprised that the front door was unlocked. What kind of security did this place have? Looking around as I waited my turn, I noticed that the people on the ground floor weren't free to wander around like us. Their cell doors were different, with thicker bars and electronic locks. Some of them paced back and forth in their cells, some were sleeping, and others yet cowered in the far corners of their cells, like they were afraid of something. But they all had one thing in common, 
a crazed expression in their bloodshot eyes. Distracted by them, I did notice someone cutting the line. Not until another man, the biggest one in sight, tried to stop him. I tensed up, expecting it to hit the fan and a riot started in a moment. But everyone else backed away from the two as they raised their voices. Until they were screaming in each other's faces. I wanted to back off as well, but a hand on my shoulder had stopped me. Watch and learn. Chris whispered by my side. It didn't take the two men very long to start trading blows. The first punch was thrown, but the bigger guy just took it and went down like a sack of bricks. He could have easily dodged it and hit back, but for whatever reason he chose not to. What? I started asking, but the sounds of alarms blaring in the building had stopped me. Everyone scrammed while I reached for my ears. The main doors flung open and six guards armed to the teeth rushed in. They yelled for everyone to get to the ground with their hands behind their backs, and we all obeyed. I jumped on my belly with my hands behind my head, and Chris did the same, landing so close to me that I could feel his breath on my cheek. Four of the guards took positions by the main entrance, rifles trained on us. The other two advanced into the building, heading straight for the man that started the fight. He froze as they approached so one of the guards slammed the butt of his rifle into the man's face. I said get to the ground, the guard repeated. The man fell down on all fours, spitting out red as he screamed profanities. The two guards got on him, hitting him with their rifles again and again, until he was unconscious. Then they cuffed the man's hands behind his back and took him away, not saying a word to the rest of us. He's going straight to Block C after his stunt like that. Chris whispered when the guards were far enough away to not hear. This is why we have so much freedom, and why we follow the rules. If we don't, they show no mercy. Why not tell me sooner? I asked. You never know when a rat is nearby, Chris answered. Now shush before somebody notices that we're talking. The man was dragged out. Everyone waited for a few minutes, and then they got up and back into line like nothing had happened. I followed suit and got breakfast as well, wondering the whole time about what the heck just went down. But I couldn't afford asking. Not one knows where the consequence is. Let's go outside and find Andre, Chris proposed. What about Mason? I asked. Chris looked around for a moment before he answered in a hushed tone. A word of advice. Be careful around him. I think he's a rat too. It didn't take a genius to figure out what these rats were. Plans by the guards to keep an eye on us and report back to them. It explained why Chris was so cautious. I still wanted to look for answers to understand my predicament better. But it had to wait. Outside in the yard, we found Andre and Mason eating at one of the tables, with the sun beating down on them. It was still morning, but the air was already scorching hot. We sat with them and ate in silence, as no one dared ask about what went down. Why was this place so severe? What did they have to hide? And how bad was it that they tried to control the spread of information even among the inmates? 
I never got to ask. Why are you here? Andre spoke up when the silence became too much to bear. I told him, but once again, I'll leave out the details in my retelling. Suffice it to say, though, that they were all shocked and surprised. When I was done, I asked them to share their stories as well. DUI ended up running a red light and T-boning a family man. Killed the father and his two young kids, and the mother ended up in a wheelchair for life. Chris said in a quiet tone, I, I deserve every moment here, every bad thing coming my way. That was depressing. I didn't want to think about how he felt. I couldn't even begin to imagine. I hurt a lot of people, so I wasn't innocent by any means. But at least the ones that I hurt weren't innocent either. They were guys just like myself that had it coming. My turn, Andre said in a serious tone. He pushed his tray away and leaned on the table with his elbows. I was married for 15 years, had two beautiful kids and a loving wife. Or so I thought. One day, I get a message from a stranger with a short video attached. It was her with another guy, and him saying, sorry bro. And let me guess, you killed her. I killed them both. Andre answered without a hint of regret. Freaking heck man, I said, getting scared by him at that point. I didn't hurt anyone else, he kept talking. After that, I drove to the police station and I turned myself in. He seemed proud of his achievement, a bit too proud. We were birds of a feather, I could tell. So under different circumstances, I would have loved to cut him down a peg, but I couldn't risk it. What about your kids? I asked instead. That wiped his grin off his face. I don't know, he answered. They're still young, so they probably don't know the whole story. Just whatever my in-laws decided to share. But they can hate me for all I care. With that remorseless remark that made everyone uncomfortable, our attention moved from Andre and onto Mason. What about you? I asked him. What about me? What did you do to land you in here? Mason dropped his spoon into his bowl and mumbled something under his breath. It doesn't matter, he said after a moment. I'm in here now. Boo, Chris let out. You're a bad sport, Andre completed. But Mason didn't budge. No matter how much we pestered him, he wouldn't say what he did. I could understand his reluctance, though. Some crimes are heinous enough to earn you the wrath of even the worst criminals. And here, though, I couldn't see it becoming a problem. This place was too strict for anyone to risk it. All of the prisoners were on their best behavior. Anyways, that's how we lived for a while. The days kept passing, turning into weeks, and I slowly gained an understanding of how the prison worked. Though I still didn't understand all the pieces, I at least had them. For starters, we were allowed full freedom at all times. We would only see the guards if someone acted stupid. Otherwise, they stayed up in these guard towers, aligning the fence. We were served three meals a day, and it fell on us to bring food to the people on the ground floor. They were the only ones that weren't allowed out of their cells. 
Me and Chris usually did that most days, with some help from other inmates now and again. I didn't really care about them, don't get me wrong. I'm no saint. I just like spending time with Chris. He was the least scary and most agreeable person in there. Um, what else? We could shower whenever as well, and we had clean jumpsuits at our disposal. No one took more than their fair share of anything. We all knew better. On the rare occasions when we would get new arrivals that didn't know how the prison worked, they would find out really fast and provided us a reminder as well. One guy tried to take food from another guy, and the guard stepped in real fast. He didn't get violent though, so he didn't get sent to Black Sea. Instead, he was locked on the ground floor. Most of that I could understand to some degree, but the one thing that baffled me was why we were allowed to keep the keys to ourselves. Mason and Andre had the two copies of ours, but it didn't take me long to notice every other group had keys to their cells as well, except for the guys on the ground floor, of course. Every evening when we would go in for the night, Mason would lock the cell from the inside, and he would unlock it in the morning. Speaking of Mason, I couldn't get a read on the guy. Chris, I had befriended fast, and I was on good terms with Andre as well. No point in lying. But Mason kept to himself like his life depended on it. I could see why Chris had suspected him to be a rat. But to me, he came off as antisocial more than anything. Anyways, I was there for about two months when I finally started getting some answers. It began like any other evening, with us returning to the cell for the night. We got in our beds as Mason locked the door, and we killed time with a chatter and banter. As the sun set and the world outside was plunged into darkness, the power went out in the prison. The lone light bulb in the cell was snuffed out and I heard the others complaining right away. Just great, Mason said. I heard him fumbling in his bed, but I couldn't see what he was up to. Well, we're long overdue for a blackout event, Andre said dryly. I rolled to the edge of my own bed and leaned down closer to Chris. What's going on? I asked, keeping my voice to a whisper. I could explain, he answered, but you won't believe me. You'll have to see for yourself. In the next moment, a light came on in the building, a single red light on the ceiling, spinning around to illuminate the cells one by one. When it passed by ours, I took a moment to look at Andre and Mason. Both of them had their backs turned to us, facing the wall with their pillows held tight around their ears. Everyone to your stations, the guards yelled outside. I jumped down from the bed and walked to the window to get a better look. Normally, every other guard tower had one guard in it to make sure that we didn't approach the fence. But now every tower had at least two guards, rifles shouldered and aimed at the courtyard below. I heard faint rumbling, but I couldn't spot the source. It came from the other side of the prison, from Black Sea to be more precise. The rumbling picked up volume over the course of a few minutes as I waited in anticipation sounding more and more like someone pounding on metal. Pound, screech, pound, screech. On and on with only short pauses. 
I wondered who that was, and how they didn't break an arm yet. What's going on? I repeated my question, but Chris didn't hear me. Turning away from the window, I found him with his pillow around his ears as well, babbling nonsense to drown out the outside world. Andre and Mason joined in as well, all three of them making random noises. I should have done the same. I knew as much, but curiosity ate me up inside. Whatever was about to go down, I had to see it. So I turned back to the window and kept watching. In the few moments that I had my back to it, a thick mist started spreading outside. It pooled in the yard, swaying and forming whirlpools as it advanced. When it hit the perimeter fence, it started spreading upwards as well. In no time at all, it was high enough to reach up to the first floor. Shoot anything that tries to climb, one of the guards yelled. His choice of words baffled me. Anything. I could understand anyone. With the power out and covered by this mist, people were bound to try to break out. But anything, what was that supposed to mean? Unluckily for me, I was about to find out. The rumbling continued and it got so loud at one point that it sounded like a war drum. And then I heard a loud crash and the frantic scurrying of feet invading the courtyard. I looked at the mist as the scurrying got below the window, but I couldn't spot anything. Whoever, whatever made those sounds, was masked completely. They circled the building, more and more of them joining the unseen chaos. And then I heard the same pounding on our main door, but it didn't last for long. A couple of hits and the thing swung wide open. The motors below these stairs came to life, and I heard the hinges crying out under the stress as the scurrying entered the building. I rushed to the cell door, but I couldn't see much from there. The walkway blocked most of my view. What little I could make out on the ground floor was blocked as well. The mist invaded the building the moment the main doors were opened. I could only hear the carnage, but it was more than enough. When the stairs were fully lifted, cutting access to the upper floors, the locks on the ground floor cells beeped a few times. The electronic doors swung open on their own, exposing the prisoners to whatever beings invaded our not-so-safe haven. I heard the desperate screams, the sounds of battle, of bodies being swung around, hitting the walls and floors as their bones broke like twigs. Behind me, the others chanted louder, but their efforts were drowned out. I wanted to retreat from the door to avoid attracting attention, but I was frozen with my hands around the bars. This place was more messed up than I ever could have imagined. Gunshots erupted from outside and that finally broke me free of the spell. I rushed away from the cell into the window again, trying to see what we were up against, but I was too late. All that I found was a trail of blood on the perimeter wall just below one of the guard towers, and a whimpering sound retreating towards a block C through the mist. The event didn't last for much longer after that, a few minutes at most, but they were the most terrifying minutes of my life, and I understood then why the others reacted the way that they did.
The screams from downstairs died down one by one, until all that was left was whimpering and agonized groans. The sounds of bodies being dragged away by the same scurrying feet followed. Some of them were still alive, pleading and crying for their lives, but most of them didn't make a peep. And then silence fell. It was over. The scurrying was gone, and the mist retreated as well, little by little. Chris was the first to pull his head out of his pillow, with reddened eyes and a frantic expression on his face. Is it over? He asked attentively. I was slumped in one of these cell's corners, head between my knees. I think so. I answered with hesitation. What the heck, man? Mason somehow snored away. We heard as much when every other sound from outside had died down. Andre was still awake, though. Get some shut-eye, he told me trying to look cool and collected but failing miserably. We'll have a heck of a lot of work to do in the morning. Andre was right. We had one heck of a job to do in the morning. A few of the guards waited for us on the ground floor with supplies such as body bags and mops. I didn't catch any sleep, understandably enough, and I could see many faces in the crowd of inmates telling a similar story. The ground floor looked like a tornado of angry teeth and barbed wire had ran through a herd of cows. Blood coated every surface, with the occasional body part or length of intestine thrown into the mix. A few of the weaker willed inmates just passed out at the sight, and the rest of us didn't fare much better. My stomach was empty, but I still felt like throwing up through all of it. But we had cleaned the mess in a few hours. We had no other choice. The doors to the ground floor cells were locked again, yet we could all see how many people had perished last night. Every other cell was empty, waiting for new inmates to fill the vacant spots. The guards watched us like vultures, waiting for the slightest to slip up. No wonder no one dared step out of line. I finally understood the full gravity of our predicament. At any rate, we got done around lunchtime and the ground floor looked spotless. You couldn't tell what took place there only hours prior. The serving window opened and they served us lunch, but most people would pass on it. Their stomachs wouldn't be able to handle food for a few days at the very least. Me and Chris weren't among them, however. We took our trays and with a healthy dose of paranoia and skepticism, we went outside to eat. I looked around for any signs as we walked, finding nothing out of place. The sand on the ground was raked, the doors were back in their hinges, even the trail of red on the perimeter wall was gone. They likely had the inmates in Block B clean up the courtyard. A few other people were outside so finding seating at a table wasn't hard. Chris put his tray down and started eating with a shell-shot expression, but I was in the mood for getting some answers. I'd not get a better time than this. We were alone, so if we kept our voices low, we could talk freely. What exactly went down last night? I asked. Chris looked up at me, and then he batted an eye towards one of the guard towers. I didn't turn my head. Catching sight of the garden, the corner of my eye, 
It was hard to make out details without looking directly at him, but I saw the headphones on his head. And did they have listening devices trained on us? Bugs under the tables or in our trays? Did I mess up big time? Nah, man, you can keep your mashed potatoes. Don't worry. Chris said nonchalantly. Something in the guard's hands moved, pointing in a different direction. It was a listening device after all. Some other time, they're on high alert right now, he whispered. I took my L with a sigh and we ate in silence. Answers were hard to come by in this place. You had to fight tooth and nail for any morsel of information. Chris was the only person that I fully trusted, and he was too afraid to talk. My only option was to gather whatever I could through my own observations. The guards monitored us closely for the next few days, and they were much more severe with the rules until they filled up the ground floor cells once again. Anything and everything could land you there. If you so much as looked at someone the wrong way, you had a decent chance of getting screwed over. All four of us somehow managed to avoid that fate, though. Things calmed down after that, and we returned to our previous routine, for more or less. Chris was still in a state of shock, jumpy at everything around him, and Mason somehow managed to shut himself in even further. We had trouble getting more than a few sentences out of him on any given day before, but now he went days on end without speaking. I myself was probably not faring any better than them, but it's a hard call to make when you have to analyze your own behavior objectively. Andre was the only one of us unaffected by the ordeal, and he helped me understand what Chris and Mason were going through. I was the newest inmate in our cell, obviously, but it turned out the two of them hadn't been there for long either. Chris for less than six months, and he had lived through two prior blackout events, making this one his third. Mason was brought in shortly before me, so it was his second event. Andre, meanwhile, had been locked up there for a few years, so he had seen plenty of them, and they didn't get under his skin anymore. I wasn't sure what to make of that information, to be honest, and I didn't care much either, especially about Mason. Chris was a pal, sure, but I had no idea how to help him cope. In there, it was every man for himself. That's what I tried to tell myself in an effort to keep going anyway. In reality, I couldn't practice it. When Chris stopped leaving the cell, I tried to convince him to come outside even for a little bit. When he stopped eating, I brought him his ration like he had done for me. But it didn't work. Nothing I tried, it did. With every passing day, he got worse and worse. His deterioration was slow at first to the point that I didn't even notice it happening, but it soon became obvious. He stopped eating out of the blue and had lost a lot of weight, withering away visibly each day. His eyes lost that shine in them, that hope that things would be okay. You'll often hear tall tales of how the human spirit prevails, how our deep-rooted survival instincts carry people through the darkest of times against the most impossible odds but you rarely hear of the times that it fails, of just how brutal it is to see it shattered before your eyes. Come on, man. 
I pleaded with him one evening when I brought him dinner. You can't do this to yourself. Why not? He said with melancholy. What's the point? I'm serving a lifetime sentence. It's only a matter of time until they send me to the ground floor as well. We're always just one mistake away from being torn apart by monsters. I sighed, knowing full well that he was right. None of us would make it out if you were alive. We all had long sentences to serve, so it was inevitable. We could survive for years and it wouldn't matter. We had to be lucky each and every time, a million times in a row, but the guards only had to be lucky ones. And even if we had managed to pull it off, to survive the full length of our sentences, I doubted they would just let us walk away. They would pull some BS to get us caught, to keep the truth from getting out. And for people like Chris who served life sentences, there really was no hope left, no matter how vague and distant. After a while, I just stopped trying. There was no point in it. I couldn't force food down his throat. I somehow managed to hold on myself, though I'm not sure how or why. Maybe the full gravity of the situation hadn't sank in properly yet for me. One or two more blackout events though, and I was likely to break just like Chris had. But that was a distant prospect. For the time being, my mind was taken up by his worsening condition. Each day, I expected to wake up and find him dead in the bunk below my own. Nah, look at the bright side. Andre said one evening as we ate dinner in the courtyard. It was just the two of us at the table. Chris hadn't left the cell in about a month at that point, and Mason had stopped hanging out with us long ago. If he croaks, the bottom bunk is yours. That remark angered me, and I didn't try to hide it. I looked up at him with rage, ready to punch his jaw right off his stupid face. But Andre wasn't phased, or much less intimidated. We both knew that even if the guards didn't intervene, I had no chance against him in a fight. Don't lose yourself, Jackie boy, he said with that grin again. It's cruel, but it is what it is. You have to hang on to whatever silver linings you're granted in here. Chris will die and so will Mason eventually. They'll bring in other people and those will die as well. I've had about 20 cellmates by now and they're all gone. Do I feel sorry for them? Yeah, sure. But I won't throw my own life away over theirs. Just forget it, I said, dropping the half-eaten burger back on the tray and getting up. Andre didn't say anything else and neither did I. I walked away while I could still keep my cool and avoid causing a scene. After I returned my tray, I planned to go back to the cell and check if Chris had touched his own food. But I froze at the base of the stairs. Screams came from the third floor, followed by the sounds of a struggle. I rushed up and towards it, against the crowd sent into a sudden frenzy as they tried to retreat, recognizing Chris's voice. Up on the third floor, I found two guards dragging him out of the cell in handcuffs. Chris screamed and thrashed in a grasp, too weak at that point to put up too much of a fight. Let me go, I didn't do anything. He pleaded as they carried him towards the stairs, 
You can't do this to me. I didn't break the rules. Have some basic human decency and let me die on my own terms. The guards didn't care. They didn't speak as much as a word to him. Just kept walking. When they reached me, one of them made eye contact, silently provoking me to try something. But I wouldn't. Torn as my heart was for Chris, I just stepped out of their way, head down and my eyes pinned on my trembling feet. Please. Chris kept trying to reason with them, but to no avail. He looked back over his shoulder for a final time before they went down the stairs. We made eye contact, and the desperation in his was clear as day. But I really couldn't do anything. At most, I could have rushed in to deliver a surprise punch and break Chris's neck to spare him his fate. But that would have signed my own death sentence. So I watched as they took him away, down to the ground floor and out the main doors. He was sent straight to Block C. And part of me wanted to follow them and confirm that for myself, but I knew better so I didn't. I returned to our cell instead, finding Mason in his bed, back turned to the room. My heart nearly exploded with rage at the sight. He had ratted Chris out and caused all of this. You piece of crap. I yelled and rushed him before I realized that I was on the move. Mason didn't expect to be attacked out of the blue, but he didn't fight back either. I stopped myself at the last moment, arms still raised and ready to punch his lights out. He looked up at me, the collar of his jumpsuit held tightly in my hand, but his eyes were vacant. What? he asked. You did that, I said and pointed at the cell door. You freaking rat. You got Chris killed to save your own butt. Mason slapped my hand away weakly. I let go of him and took a step away from his bed, and he simply turned his back to me again. I didn't, and I'm not one of the rats, he answered. Now shut the heck up before an actual rat hears you. What? Then who? Everything alright. Trouble in paradise. I turned on my heels, finding Andre leaning on the cell door. The blood in my veins went a degree colder as reasoning returned to me, shooting into my brain like a speeding bullet. I had been stupid. I allowed my emotions to get the better of me. Mason wasn't the rat. Andre was, and he caught me red-handed as I broke the rules. But maybe there was still time. Maybe I still stood a chance to save myself. No, everything's fine, I answered. Oh, you sure about that, Jackie boy? He asked. I heard you screaming all the way down the stairs. Yeah, I'm sure. I just got worked up about Chris, but I'll get over it. Mason? Andre asked, moving his attention onto him instead. If Mason talked and if he told Andre that I nearly attacked him, I was a goner. And we weren't exactly buddies either, so he had no reason to cover for me. Let it go. Mason said, leaving me dumbfounded. You were the man. He got worked up, but he didn't do anything. Andre eyed us with suspicion, but he shrugged his shoulders and entered the cell. If you say so. He went to his bunk and laid down, so I did the same. In that moment, I couldn't stand to be in the cell with them, but I knew that walking away would only make things worse. 
neither stomach it to process my emotions and let them run dry so I could clear my head. I placed my hands on the top bunk, ready to hop up, but Andre stopped me. The bottom one's yours now, and don't you want it? He asked. He was trying to irk me by that point, no doubt about it, to get a first-hand reaction out of me so he could get me freaking killed as well. But I wouldn't give him the satisfaction. Yeah, I forgot. Totally slipped my mind. I said and laid on the bottom bunk. I won't lie to you, I cried myself to sleep like a little baby that night. Hot tears that had no business coming out of my eyes. But I managed to keep it hidden. And nothing happened to me, so I was in the clear. Andre didn't rat me out for whatever reason. And I had my theories on why, although I couldn't confirm them. Either he was satisfied with just Chris, or he saved me for later, knowing that I would slip up again eventually. Maybe the rats had quotas and no reason to go above and beyond. Who knows? All that I knew for sure were three things. I was safe for the meantime. I couldn't afford to mess up again. And I couldn't rely on anyone anymore. I was on my own. And time kept passing and I soon found that I had isolated myself as much as everyone else around me. I wasn't a social butterfly before by any means, but I had never been that bad. Most days, the only words coming out of my mouth were the thanks I gave to the cook behind the security glass. Some were inmates that came and went to our cell, none lasting very long. I was lucky to get help from Chris when I did, and without the same courtesy extended to them, the new guys had no chance. Repeat offenders that fared the worst, tried to tackle this prison like any other and that just didn't cut it. The next blackout event wasn't far off. From what I gathered during that conversation with Andre, they came every two months almost down to the day. I wasn't sure what to do when it would come. The temptation to hide with a pillow around my head like everyone else was huge. But I needed to know, to understand. I could be sent down to the ground floor any day, or worse yet, to Block C. Knowledge wouldn't necessarily improve my chances of survival. But it was better to have it than to lack it. Chris was right. This is hopeless. I lamented to myself. Maybe I should just get it over with. Punch Andre in the jaw and get sent to Block C to die. I was outside in the yard eating dinner all by myself. And absorbed by the dark thoughts that wormed their way into my brain. I missed Mason approaching from behind. He placed his tray down and sat opposite of me, starting to eat in silence. I had nothing to say to him, so I tried to ignore him. Way back when you asked me why I'm in here, he said after a while. I looked up at him, somewhat surprised. Yeah, well, I don't really care anymore. Just hear me out. You're not a rat, so I can trust you. I sighed and spun a hand around in the air telling him to hurry up. At that point, I really didn't care what he did on the outside to let him in here. It was irrelevant. They got my brother, Mason continued, arrested him and sent him in here. Thought he didn't have anyone so he would be easy to erase. And let me guess, he has you. 
I nearly spat out with a chuckle. So what? You barged in here to break him out. To rescue him. Yeah, actually. Mason answered with no amusement in his voice. But I can't find him anywhere. He's not in our block and he isn't in block B either. I've been watching those guys for a while. They're the ones with the orange jumpsuits. Well, in that case, it's simple. He was sent to Block C, and you know what that means. No, Jack, we don't know what that means. Mason contradicted me. No one comes back, sure, but we don't know what's in there. He could still be alive, and so could Chris. I frowned. That's where the monsters come from, and they're dead all right. Do you know for a fact that they're monsters? Have you seen one with your own eyes? Mason pressed. I wanted to bring up the evidence. Stuff like the banging too heavy to be done by a human, or the fog that accompanied the event. But I guess he anticipated my words. What if they give drugs to the inmates to send them into a frenzy? What if they have fog machines all around the compound? It doesn't have to be supernatural. And why would they do any of that? Mason shrugged his shoulders. How the heck am I supposed to know? They're messed up in the head. But it's not like they haven't tried dark stuff on humans before. A place like this could be a perfect playground for whatever messed up test they have devised. They being the government I presumed, or some shadow branch of it. Okay, fine, it's a possibility, I admitted. So what? It doesn't change anything if they're inmates high out of their minds instead of monsters. Why even come to me with this? We're due for another blackout event soon, Mason answered. Any day now and I, he said, rummaging through his jumpsuit to pull out something. Have the key to our cell. You want to go out during one? That's a death wish, Mason completed. Maybe. On my own, definitely. But not if we work together. I was dumbstruck. Was he for real right now? Andre will rat you out, I said when I regained some composure. That's why I need your help. We can get our answers and get rid of Andre at the same time. It's a win-win. I did a quick check of our surroundings, finding few guards in the towers nearest to us, and the ones that were present weren't paying any attention. With the blackout event inbound, they wouldn't care about us for a few days. Mason had planned this talk out in advance. With or without you, I'm doing it. He said when he noticed that I was indecisive. But think about it. This is your chance to pay Andre back. The guards will just send another rat to our cell. And we'll take him out as well when the time comes. Mason sat and got up from the table to walk away. I didn't follow him. I needed some time to process all that I had heard. The offer was tempting, but I wasn't ready to go through with it. It was all too sudden. I mulled over it until the sunset, getting no closer to making a decision. So I returned to the cell, finding Andre and Mason in their bunks. The latter shot me a questioning look, but I got into my own bunk and turned my back to them. A few more days passed like that, with Mason's plan bouncing around in my head. He didn't pester me about it, just shooting me glances now and again that went unanswered. 
We didn't know when exactly the next blackout event would hit. We just knew that it would be any day now. And when it finally did come, when the lights went out one evening, I was still unprepared. The Andre reacted like last time, bending his pillow around his head. Mason didn't lose any time though. He shot up from his bed and took off towards the cell door. You in or out? He asked in a hushed tone. A hundred thoughts raced through my mind of what would happen if we failed, if we got caught by the guards or worse yet, by whatever the heck would come out of Black Sea. But on the other hand, I wouldn't last forever anyway. I'm in. I said and got up to join Mason by the door. He pulled out the key but didn't get to unlock it. What are you two up to? Andre asked. Keep him busy for a bit, Mason instructed. Andre didn't hesitate. It didn't take him long to put two and two together. He jumped out of the bed and rushed us, barging in like a bull. I spread my feet and tensed my body trying to catch him, but fat chance. He pushed me back like nothing, slamming me into Mason and the door. Something clattered on the floor as Andre took a step back and we slid down against the bars. Mason had dropped the key. What the heck are you two doing? Andre screamed. Oh man, screw me. Mason complained and pushed me away. Andre pinned his gaze on me, walking over me as I squirmed on the floor. Nothing got broken, or at least I didn't think so, but I still hurt all over. I spotted the key though, so I went to take it, but Andre had expected as much. He kicked the thing out of my hand and further into the cell. You trying to get us killed, is that it? He asked. As he grabbed onto Mason's collar and got ready to lift him off the floor, I took my chance. I swiped Andre's legs and dashed away on all fours as he came crashing down like a sack of bricks, on top of Mason of course. They let out curses but Mason caught on, both figuratively and literally. He latched his arms around Andre's neck and kicked his legs out from under him when he tried to get up, keeping him pinned down. Get the key. On it. I rushed over to the key and grabbed it off the floor, hearing the sounds of Andre punching Mason behind me. Even though the position was awkward, he still managed to put a lot of force behind each and every strike. The sounds of banging on Block C's doors joined the meaty thuds as I got back up to my feet. Let go! Andre screamed in Mason's ear. I was about to go back and unlock the door, but I stopped. Andre tensed up his body, pulling the jumpsuit taut over his skin. His muscles ripped and he nearly foamed at the mouth as he forced himself up, with Mason around his throat like a scarf. The dude was a monster himself. Give me that, he demanded, walking towards me slowly as he tried to pry Mason off. When it didn't work, he grabbed a fistful of Mason's hair and turned his head. Andre pulled back, tensing his neck and headbutted Mason so hard that he broke his nose. But Mason still held on. Unlock the door, he stuttered. Andre headbutted him again and again until Mason's arms went limp. His face was a bloody mess, and when Andre pushed him away, he crumpled to the floor like a ragdoll. Come on, Jackie boy, don't be stupid, Andre said, wiping Mason's blood off his own forehead with a sleeve. 
Give me that and I promise that nothing will happen to you. We can put this behind us. Blame it on Mason going stir-crazy. And we'll go on living. Like I'd believe that, I shot back. Although I trembled in my jumpsuit. Hey, I didn't rat you out before, did I? He pointed out, taking a step towards me. And anyway, if I wanted that back, I could have taken it already. You can't stop me either way. I'm being generous here. I was trying to come up with another idea. Something, anything to get me out of that pinch. I could give in, side with Andre and betray Mason. But for how long would that ensure my safety, if at all? The banging from outside got louder and louder, until the doors it gave way. Andre took another step towards me, arms fanned out, as the skittering of feet filled the courtyard. What will it be, Jackie boy? I... Mason jumped him from behind and bit into Andre's left ear. They both screamed, one in rage and the other in agony. Mason pulled his head back and forth, biting deeper and deeper as Andre bucked under him. Blood went flying everywhere and Mason pulled his head back one final time, taking Andre's ear off. Mason spat the mangled chunk and went for another bite right away, one that landed on Andre's left cheek. As the two of them brawled, I took the chance that Mason had bought me and ran around them to the door. I shoved the key into the latch, fighting back the trembling in my hands as I tried to turn it and unlock the dang thing. It released with a click, so I threw it open and dodged out of the way just in time to avoid Andre's charge. Him and Mason flew out onto the catwalk, crashing into the safety railing. Andre tried to throw him over the edge, but Mason held on too tight. In their mad brawl, they ended up falling down, with Mason on top. He punched Andre in the face once, twice, three times, but it did next to nothing. On the next punch, Andre caught his fist and spun his arm around, throwing him off. Mason landed face first into the wall. Fine, I'll kill both of you, Andre said as he got up. He was missing his left ear and his left cheek had deep teeth marks in it but the pain didn't seem to bother him. He was too upset for any of that. Starting with you. He grabbed onto Mason and lifted him up over his head like a twig. I was frozen in fear, facing this behemoth of a man. I couldn't move a muscle. Andre shot me another glare, making eye contact and pinning me into place. And then he turned his back to me, walking towards the railing to throw Mason over. You hear that? He asked. The sounds of beeps filled the building as the electronic locks of the ground floor cells released. Banging on the main entrance doors followed, and they opened a moment later. The skittering of feet invaded the ground floor, mixing themselves in with a cacophony of screams from the doomed inmates. You'll find out what's down there first, Dan. That's if you survive the fall. He got ready to throw Mason over, and then he would come for me. I snapped into action despite the fear, rushing out of the cell, arms in front of myself. Andre didn't expect that, and he didn't get to dodge me. I pushed him from behind, hard enough to make him stumble and hit the railing. As tall as he was, it only reached up to his manhood. Another push would send him over, but Mason would go down with him. Screw it, no choice. In a split-second decision, I went for the second push. 
With his center of gravity above the railing, Andre rolled over and fell head first. He let go of Mason in the last moment though, so I jumped forward and grabbed his hand. His weight and the momentum of his fall nearly whisked me off my feet as well, but my stomach caught the railing and I avoided falling. I looked down past Mason into the sea of fog that covered the unfolding carnage taking place below us. It was too thick to make out anything in most places, but Andre's fall created a small hole. His body was sprawled on the concrete, limbs that clearly broken and bent in awkward angles, but he was still alive. He groaned and tried to move, to turn on his belly and crawl to safety, but an arm shot out of the fog and grabbed one of his legs. Andre let out a wheezing scream, and then he was dragged out of sight. Pull me up already, Mason yelled. Oh, right, sorry. I did as told, pulling him up and helping him over the edge. We both collapsed on the catwalk side by side, but Mason didn't stay down for long. The madman wanted to get back up and walk towards the stairs. Don't, I tried to stop him. You're in no shape to go down there. But that's why we did all of this, Mason retorted, to find out the truth, to see what's in the fog. I didn't save your butt so you could go get killed anyway, I said forcefully. Get back in the cell. With Andre out of the way, we can wait for the next blackout event. For now, we should think what lies that will spin for the guards in the morning. I could see Mason didn't like it, but his shoulders deflated as he turned around and walked back to the cell. I got up and followed him in, locking the door and putting an end to the madness for the meantime. Come morning, Andre's body was nowhere in sight, predictably enough. He was dragged off to God knows where like everyone else. Mason and I did our best to get rid of any evidence, throwing Andre's severed ear to the ground floor through the bars of the cell, but we couldn't do anything about the blood or about our injuries. Mine was masked by the jumpsuit. Long stripes of skin turned purple as they bruised, but Mason's face was in shambles. And we had rehearsed some stuff to tell the guards, even though we both expected it to be useless in the end. No way they would take our side over their precious rats. I don't care either way, Mason admitted. I want to get to Block C. Then why not attack someone? I asked. And why get me involved as well? Because I would have preferred not to be dragged there in handcuffs, Mason answered. To get the chance to gather some intel and sneak over during another blackout event. But if we get sent to the ground floor, I can still make it work. That was our most likely fate. We didn't know yet how many had perished last night, but some were bound to. The guards would need replacements. So, for a few days, no one would be sent to Block C. All rule breakers would go straight to the ground floor, no matter the offense. It wasn't a deal, but at least it would buy us some time. With that in mind, we made our way down when the guards had entered the block. As soon as they had caught sight of Mason's face, one pointed at us and the other one took off. We expected him to grab us right then and there, but instead he rushed past as the first guard waved us over. What happened to your face? He asked Mason when we got close. Our cellmate attacked us last night. Mason lied like we had agreed. He... 
The guard raised a finger and stopped him. We waited in silence until the other one returned, and they talked between each other for about half a minute at most. Hushed whispers that we couldn't hear, and when they were done, they escorted us out of Block A with rifles at her back. When we were split up and I was taken to an interrogation room, I won't go into details, they're not really important, but suffice it to say they were brutal. They had no qualms with doing what they had to do as they asked these same questions 100 times over. But I stuck to the story that Mason and I had rehearsed. I refused to crack. In the end, though, it didn't matter. After every inch of my body was hurting, I was taken back into Block A to one of the ground floor cells. They shoved me in and locked it behind me as the existential crisis finally sank in. This wouldn't be good. About half an hour later or so, I saw Mason as well. I didn't hold out hope that he would be my cellmate. Ground floor was solitary, but I hoped he would be near enough to me so that we could talk. No dice. His cell was opposite of mine all the way across the floor. My time there was boring beyond belief. There's nothing worse than that in my opinion. I would take the interrogation room treatment over it in a heartbeat. My held out for the first few days, but after that, I started going off the rails, alternating between catatonic periods of rage, resentment, and fear. Every day was a roll of the dice as to what the main emotion would be, but I went across the spectrum. Some days I got food, some days I didn't. Being at the mercy of the other inmates meant going hungry and thirsty for long periods of time. I lost weight steadily because of it. I could feel my body growing weaker. Chris really had been a godsend for the rest of us in this place. I just never understood how much so. Anyways, the two months passed and we got our next blackout event. Only this time, I had a front row seat to the whole thing. It started out slow, like the other two had, with the power cutting out followed by distant sounds of pounding on the doors of Block C. Some of the other ground floor inmates had started weeping. Others started pacing about in their cells. A few even pulled desperately on the bars. I looked across the floor for Mason to see what he was up to since things were apparently going to plan. Given the large distance between us, we couldn't talk. We would have to yell back and forth and that was a no-no. Mason stood in front of his cell door, arms crossed as he waited for the electronic lock to release. He seemed ready for some action. When he noticed me staring, he pointed at the main entrance with a finger, a clear signal for me to meet him there. So I started thinking of ways to accomplish that. The pounding grew faster and louder, and the signature mist the event brought seeped into our building under the door. Block C's doors finally gave way just as these stairs to the upper floor started lifting off the ground, isolating us down there. A myriad of emotions washed through me all at once, most of them drowned out by the overwhelming fear. We stood a chance, Mason and I. Other inmates proved that you could survive, but we didn't know how they did it, so the chance was slim. The skittering outside got nearer, filling me with adrenaline, and the mist already reached at waist level. I took one final look at Mason, 
then at the main entrance and readied myself. The lock to my cell beeped a couple of times and the door opened on its own. Banging started on our main entrance door and the mist reached all the way up to my neck so I didn't waste any time. As soon as I could leave the cell I did so, dashing out and following the wall to my right and gunning it through the middle of the room would have been a death wish. I either would have missed the main entrance or ran into whatever came through it. This way, I had a solid point of contact, something to keep me on track and keep me steady. On my way, I passed the other cells and tried to peer inside, but I couldn't see Jack. The mist reached over my head at that point, so I couldn't make out my own hand if I reached out my arm. But I heard the other inmates, loud and clear as they cowered and cried out in fear. Nothing that I could do about it though. I wasn't even sure if I could save myself. I made it to the main entrance before the door opened, so I squatted down next to it and waited with bated breath. Not making as much as a peep since I figured San was the only way for them to find us. Visibility was too low, and any smells would get dampened by the mist as well. But without sound, I had no chance of finding Mason either. The things banged on the entrance a few more times and the flimsy lock broke. The doors flew wide open, crashing against the walls, and I heard the tide of feet rushing inside right beside me. I couldn't see them though, only vague shapes that looked inhuman. Distorted shapes, some bulky, some spindly, some low to the ground. They were monsters alright. Keeping the layout of the ground floor in mind like a map, I tried to guess what was going on based on what I could hear. The monsters rushed the cells first, getting to all of those who hadn't been brave enough to leave and setting off things. Screams erupted all around, making it hard to discern anything else. But I had my first big clue. Leave the cell ASAP. After that, the monsters ran around at random through the mist as they tried to hunt down everyone else. They leapt ahead. They crashed into the walls. One even hit a steel beam only a few feet away from me. That was my second clue. Keep quiet and keep to the walls. Once in a while, when one of them found and killed someone, they would drag them out of the building. Most of the time, they were dead. But I heard some still crying and weeping in the grasp of the creatures. Mason hadn't reached me yet, though, so I suspected the worst. That he got caught on the way, but I had no way to tell. All I could do was wait and pray that I would survive. The minutes passed slowly, and I didn't budge from my spot. The screams died down one by one, and the monsters steadily left, until there were only a few of them around. I thought that that was it. I had made it. So I resolved to look for signs of what had happened to Mason before I would return to my cell. Even the mist had started to settle and dissipate, so I was sure that I was in the clear. And then another monster passed by, and the inmate it carried let out a grumbled groan. Mason, I asked out loud. Uh, help. The monster paused. I could vaguely see their shapes halfway out the door, so I rushed over. The creature let out a high-pitched yelp and took off, dragging Mason along on his back. We left the building and ran through the courtyard as the mist had lifted more and more. 
The details were still obscured, but I can make out the overall picture. It looked like a human bent out of shape, pulled and stretched into a crocodilian body plan, except it ran backwards, keeping a hold on Mason and its eyes on me. Let go of him, I yelled and sped up. My body wasn't happy about that. The muscular atrophy and prolonged starvation took their toll on me, but I had to push myself and save Mason, or else I would be on my own. I couldn't catch up to them, but running blindly as it did, it was only a matter of time until the creature had tripped on something. Before it had regained its bearings, I was on top of it. I jumped up and landed on its flat, deformed spine, kicking the back of its head. My toes hurt through the thin shoes, and it felt like I struck a slab of concrete. Mason joined in as well, though, kicking it under the chin with his free leg. Our combined attack did little damage, but it was enough to annoy the creature. It let out another yelp and it released Mason, bucking a few times to get me off as well. I landed on my butt in the sand, and it took off running towards a black sea empty-handed. Freaking heck, Mason complained, sprawled on his back as he struggled for breath. Come on, let's go back before anybody spots us. I helped him up, and we shuffled back towards our block propped into each other. Mason had some nasty cuts and large bruises, but nothing life-threatening as far as I could tell. He assured me that he would tear his jumpsuit to shreds and use it as bandages to stop the bleeding so he would be fine. What now? I asked him when we got back inside. Do we go back to ourselves? Yeah, Mason answered. The doors will close when the electricity comes back on, and who knows what the guards will do to us if they find us outside. Uh, fair point, but we still had a few minutes until then and we wouldn't get another chance to talk. And so talk we did. Mason told me what had happened to him. Apparently, he had hesitated and didn't leave his cell right away. When he did, he made a beeline to the main entrance and ended up bumping into someone. The man got scared and attacked him. They fought until the monsters had barged in, so he ran around at random to escape them. But the madman had pulled it off. He had been insanely lucky. I told him what to do, and we quickly devised a plan for the next event. We would do the same thing that I had done, meet up and rush out into the courtyard the moment the monsters were all inside. Some stragglers were bound to linger outside, but the majority of them would be drawn to the ground floor by the screaming. Once in the clear, we would make a break for Block C and find out the truth. With our plan made, we returned to our cells. The electricity came back a little while later and the doors closed on their own, trapping us once again. I didn't know what to expect, but the guys from Block B rushing in with rifles and their orange jumpsuits wasn't it. They did a quick sweep of the ground floor, finding a single man with broken legs crawling around. So they took him out without hesitation. All clear, one of them declared. After that, they left, not speaking a single word to the rest of us who had survived. The stairs whirred to life and dropped back down to the ground, signaling the end of the blackout event. Come morning, I saw how few of us had made it, barely a handful including Mason and I. Although some of my questions got answered, I was left with even more of them to mull over for the next couple of months. 
What was the deal with the monsters? Where did they come from? What about the guys from Block B? And most importantly, what would he even accomplish if we made it to Block C? We would satiate our curiosity, sure, but we would likely die in the process. Chris and Mason's brother were dead, there was no doubt about it, and I knew Mason realized as much. But then again, what else was there for us? Doing this or not, this goal will give us something to work towards and to look forward to, something to keep us grounded and sane. It allowed us to retain a measure of control over our lives in this otherwise hopeless place. So, we would try and we would die, but at least it would be our choice. Morning came and the other inmates came down from their cells to clean up the mess. I could see the terror on their faces clear as day when faced with how many people had perished, and all of them knew too well they stood a good chance to take their places. And that's what happened. Over the course of the next few days, the ground floor cells filled up one by one. I won't go into detail about the following two months. They were boring and I don't really know how to make them entertaining for you. It was more of the same, a repeat of my first stint. Bored out of my mind, hungry and thirsty most days and so on and so forth. This time I tried to somewhat keep in shape by doing some limited workouts but the nutritional deficit didn't make it easy. It's hard to retain muscle mass when you don't eat, and your body decides to cannibalize itself for protein or whatever. But they passed, and us initial survivors were little more than walking skeletons by the end. Mason and I wouldn't have another shot at it. Another two months of this would likely do us in, so we had to make it count. As soon as the doors of our cells opened, we both rushed out and followed the plan. Keep quiet to avoid being found, keep to the walls to avoid getting lost, and reach the main entrance to meet up. I lost sight of him well before that, the mist set in fast, but I pulled my part off without a hitch. Just like last time, I was by the doors when they burst open, and they rushed past me into the building. I waited for all of the monsters to pass me, tensing up for a speedy getaway. Mason, you there? I asked in a hushed voice. Yeah, on your signal, he answered. Go. We gunned it out of the building side by side, keeping close to one another at all times. Out in the courtyard, Mason took the lead in guiding me towards a block C, as screams filled the building that we left behind. We heard more footsteps through the mist, but none were in our direct path. Most either rushed towards Block A or the perimeter wall, where the guards atop their towers gunned them down when they tried to climb. Almost there, Mason assured me all out of breath. I wasn't any better myself though, on the verge of hyperventilating my lungs out and throwing up before curling up into a ball to die of exhaustion. Never in my life had I been that weak and I'll do anything to avoid it being like that again. But we made it after a couple of minutes, finding the doors wide open. It was the closest that we had ever gotten to Block C, right up against it, so I took a moment to observe it as we caught our breath. The walls were thicker, and so were the steel doors. It had some windows on at the upper floors, but we had never seen anyone behind the bars. You sure about this? I asked Mason. Yeah, what, will you chicken out? 
No chance. Let's go. We entered the building side by side, trembling with both fear and anticipation. Light emanated from inside, filtered by the milky fog. But it didn't come from the ceiling or the emergency lights that came on everywhere else. It came from the floor, from the middle of the building. What the... I started, but somebody stopped me. What are you two doing here? We turned, bumping into each other, finding a man in the doorway behind us. The orange jumpsuit stood out even through the mist, though that could have been because of the high-power flashlight mounted on his rifle. Mason turned, ready to bolt as I thought of what to say, but the man shot around into the floor by her feet. Talk, he demanded. You see, it's a funny story. We got lost. I said without missing a beat. Uh-huh, the man said, though he didn't sound convinced. You got lost and somehow made it all the way out here. That is funny, I'll give you that. Now tell me the truth before I put a cap in you. We want to see what's in here, Mason answered. Do not die ignorant. Why stop us? I couldn't see the man's face clearly. What with all of the mist and the blinding light pointed right in our faces. But even so, I was sure that he smiled a grin at us. You two have guts, I like that. Tell you what, return to yourselves and no one has to die here tonight. Oh come on, Mason pleaded. We'll die anyway, at least. I can't, the man answered. Now come, those things are bound to return with fresh kills at any moment now. We looked at each other, both completely blown away by the turn of events. What now? Trying to make a break for it despite the warning. Get shot in the back. We were both ready to die, but not like this. Not without reaching our goal. I nodded at Mason, and although I could see he regretted it, he nodded back. So we followed the man out of the building, through the courtyard and towards the tables. A few monsters approached us on the way but he shot them down and the rifle proved effective. When we had reached the tables, he sat down and placed the rifle in his lap, and then he thought better of it. Know how to shoot? He asked me. More or less, I answered. Great, he said and tossed the rifle to me. Keep watch for a bit, would you? He was awfully unfazed and trusting. What if I decided to shoot him instead? Not that I would. I was too curious to see where this was going, but still. He pulled out a pack of cigarettes and a lighter, lit one up and drew in a lungful of smoke that got lost in the mist. You guys smokers, you want one? Mason turned him down and I nearly did so myself. It had been a long time since I had last had a smoke. The nicotine cleared out my system so it would make me dizzy as all heck. Plus my state wouldn't help that. But screw it. Take any silver linings you're granted in here, right? Right. I accepted his offer, so he lit up a cigarette for me as well and handed it over. What do you want with us? Mason asked after a long moment of silence. You clearly don't want to kill us or turn us in. Clearly, the man said. Truth is, I like you two idiots. It takes balls to try something like this. So, I have an offer. But hey, first things first. Introductions. Jack. Mason. The name's Theodore, but you can call me Theo for short. 
Nice to meet you, Jack and Mason. I wasn't sure what to make of Theo. The guy was estranged from the get-go. Over the top in his mannerisms, over the top in every word that he spoke. Every line sounded fake somehow, fabricated and rehearsed. Like he was trying to put up a front, which, granted, wasn't the strangest thing to ever happen to me by a long shot. But it didn't make for a good first impression. You two survived the previous blackout event, correct? He asked. Yeah. Great. Balls and potential. This is exciting. What do you want? Mason repeated, sounding upset by that point. Straight to the point, huh? Well, fine. Theo sat with a sigh, adding killjoy under his breath. I want to refer the two of you for Block B, if you're up for it. Take it from me, it's by far the best place to be in this crap hole. For the second time that night, we were both utterly forward, left speechless. Theo just laughed at our reaction. What, not interested? You won't make it for long back there. You'll die by the next blackout event. Monster to your six, by the way. I turned and shot blindly into the fog, hearing the thump of bullets hitting a mass. The monster let out a screech and scurried away. I didn't say that, I retorted, dizzy from the rush of nicotine and the adrenaline the recoil had sent flooding into my veins. I'm down for it, count me in. Jack, Mason said forcefully, elbowing my ribs. What? Think about it for even a second. We have no other choice here. Mason sighed deeply, but he didn't say anything else. He knew that I was right. Search for answers. We couldn't search for crap if we died. Fine, I'm in too. Great. Theo said and clapped his hands together. He got up from the seat and approached me. Can I have that back, please? Uh, sure, I said, handing him back his rifle. So what now? Do we follow you back to Black Beer? Not yet, Theo said. The gears around here turn slowly. It'll take some time. Go back to your cells for the meantime. Uh, but... Look, it's not a promise, okay? Just a chance. Theo said bluntly. But it sure as heck beats your other options. Neither one of us liked that. But we resigned ourselves to our choice. Theo turned to leave through the fog, but he left us with some parting words. We'll talk some more later, hopefully under better circumstances. Trust me, boys, I have big plans for us. Trust him, huh? The mere concept almost made me laugh. Trust was a commodity in here, and perhaps the one in shortest demand. But our options were limited. Theo left after that, so Mason and I waited there for the blackout event to end. We couldn't risk moving through the fog, but we would be fine if we kept quiet. A few minutes later it was over with, so we returned to Block A when the mist had started dissipating. The same thing that we had gotten used to greeted us, though we were desensitized to it by now. We just parted and returned to ourselves without speaking another word to each other. There was nothing left to say. The rest of it went like last time. Electricity came back on, the cell doors had closed on their own. The guys from Block B came in to sweep the area and check for survivors. This time, I spotted Theo among them. He was the one leading them and that gave me some hope. Only Mason and I made it that time. Everyone else was dead. 
Come morning, I didn't sleep awake. My mind was too busy running in circles at all the possibilities, reinvigorated by the hope coursing through me. I was so sure we had died that I didn't care. I abandoned my sense of self-preservation, but now I stood a chance. An actual, honest-to-God chance to survive in the long term, so I wouldn't kick it away. The other inmates cleaned the ground floor by lunchtime, and to my surprise, one of them brought me food and water. He passed the stuff to me between the bars, along with a message. Theo sends his regards, and a request. Keep in shape. Tell him I'll do my best. The guy was a rat, I was sure of it, but hey, I had food so I wouldn't complain. He gave Mason some too, probably along with the same message. From that day forward, we didn't go hungry anymore. Theo's rat brought us breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And let me tell you this. You all might take it for granted, but you've got no idea how big of a positive impact having a full belly has on your mental health. We were still neck deep in it, don't get me wrong, but regaining some of the privileges that we lost was amazing and nearly brought me to tears. It might sound dark and in all fairness it was, but it's the truth. I recovered slowly, but I didn't take it easy for long. After a week or two to allow my body to bounce back, I started training the best I could. Push-ups, sit-ups, jumping jacks, anything and everything to keep in shape like Theo demanded. Across the floor, I could see Mason doing the same. And time passed like that, and soon enough, another month had gone by. One day, when the rat came with her food, I stopped him for chatter. Any word from Theo? I asked. He told me to tell you this in case you start asking questions. Have some patience. The gears turn slowly. Got it. More time passed and we soon neared the next blackout event. I had patience, not like I had a choice, but I was starting to get worried. Would a Theo get it done before it hit? Would we have to survive another one? Did it even matter though? We pulled it off twice so I was confident that we could do it again, now that we knew what we were doing. But still, luck played a huge part in it and ours could run out at any moment. At the two-month mark, the rat returned with a final message. One more time to convince the higher-ups. Well, screw me. He carried the same message to Mason and even from so far away. I could see him flinch in anger and frustration. But it couldn't be helped. We signed ourselves up so now we had to face the music and hope for the best. A few days later, that's precisely what we ended up doing. The blackout event came, so we sprung into action. We rushed out of the cells, followed the walls, and met up near the main entrance. My plan was to take our chances in the yard, so we waited for the monsters to come in. As soon as the last one had passed us and we didn't hear any others, we took off. But this time, we had a nasty surprise. Theo and two other orange jumpsuits waited there. Rifles pointed at us. Was this a betrayal? Why? Uh, sorry, boys. You'll have to weather the storm in there this time. Theo let us know. Out here, it's too easy. Mason grumbled, but Theo interrupted him. He let out a shot with the rifle into the ceiling. 
predictably enough that sent all the monsters in a frenzy in coming our way. Mason tensed up and raised his fist, but I kept a level head. We had to move real quick. We couldn't waste time arguing. So I grabbed his arm and pulled him away. Behind us, Theo and his pals closed the door and locked it again, trapping us in there. We had to get higher up to find safety. The ground floor was a literal killing floor and we couldn't last long in it. Luckily, we got someone back into shape, so it should have been doable. When we reached the catwalk, get on my shoulder and grab on. I'll climb up on you and then pull you up as well. I shared my plan with Mason. Let's go, he agreed. We ran through the mist, with monsters and other inmates passing us every now and again. Most were too busy running to or from each other, until one decided that we looked tastier than his previous target. A tall beast, easily eight feet in height, but scrawny. Its muscles were well-defined, but its skin was ripped to shreds here and there where it gave away as it expanded. With all of that in mind, let's call it Lanky. Lanky let out a high-pitched yell and lunged. Mason pushed me to the ground and followed me down as well, so Lanky missed and flew over us. We took off on all fours like that, hoping to reach that catwalk and get away. But it chased after us, of course it wouldn't be easy. We kept dodging, working together to remain one step ahead of Lanky's attacks. Come on, make it fast, I told Mason when we got below the catwalk. He ran up from behind and climbed on my shoulders as I tried to keep steady. Lanky let out another screech not far behind us. I felt Mason tense up, the wavering in his legs gone before he told me that he got a grab. I got out from under him and grabbed a hold of his jumpsuit to climb him like a ladder, but Lanky had interrupted us. It struck me from behind and sent me to the ground, like I had been run over by a freaking car. And then it slapped Mason away too hard enough to send him flying into the nearest wall some six feet away. Lanky stepped over me to go to Mason and I knew that I had to do something fast to save our butts. I looked up at it, observing it for a weak point that I could exploit, and I settled on its spine. It was the thinnest part of its body by far, mostly exposed to bone with a wisp of muscles to keep it connected, barely about the thickness of my forearm. I bolted to my feet and ran into Lanky from behind, hoping to tackle it. No dice, it remained standing. All I managed to do was make it more upset. It swiveled on its heels and tried to swap me away, but I dodged to blow its arm. On my way back up, I delivered a punch in its groin, but it also had little effect. I needed to attack that spine. After I dodged another slam, I punched one of the vertebrae but it felt like reinforced concrete against my fist. I pouted, holding my fist as I retreated. I couldn't do this, not on my own. There is a reason why so many people died to these things. They were tough, perhaps impossible to take down empty-handed. Mason! On it! Mason answered from somewhere within the fog. I kept Lanky busy for a few more moments. It didn't manage to land a blow on me, only glancing my jumpsuit, but even that was enough. It ripped through the material and reached the skin beneath, leaving behind long, shallow gashes, one of those across my abdomen, and I'd be picking up my insides off the ground. Mason! I cried out again, 
Do it. Mason rolled over and got on all fours behind Linky. I dodged another swipe and went in, pushing into it and using the momentum of its attack in my favor. Lanky went backwards, his legs snagged on Mason, and it toppled over on its back. Twist the head clockwise, I instructed while grabbing onto its legs. Mason did as I told, even though I could tell that it was difficult for him. Who knew how many bones he had broken from that one hit? But my plan worked. We twisted Lanky in opposite directions from opposite ends at the same time. His spine, being the weakest link in its body, gave out with a sickening crack. Not enough to kill it, but at least it was incapacitated so we could carry out our initial plan. Can you still move? I can force myself. Mason answered as I helped him away from Lanky. Let's get this over with. He climbed on top of my shoulders again, but Lanky just wouldn't give up. Even with a broken spine, it crawled our way using its arms. At least it moved slower though. I jumped to avoid another swipe of my legs, giving Mason a much needed push so he could reach the catwalk. He grabbed on so I held onto him in midair without falling back. Below us, Lanky screeched and yelped, angry that we had gotten away. I climbed up all the way over the railing and onto the catwalk of the first floor, and then I turned around and helped Mason up as well, before we both collapsed. We did it, he mumbled, clearly in a lot of pain. Theo, I screamed. Screw you, Theo, we made it. Get us out. The main entrance was thrown wide open, so we waited for the blackout event to end and for the mist to dissipate. I took that time to check on Mason, finding a huge bruise on his abdomen, where Lanky's fist had made contact, and an equally big one on his back where he'd collided with the wall. No broken bones as far as I could tell, but it would still hurt like crazy for a while. When it was finally over with and the stairs had dropped back down, Theo rushed into the building with his team. Mason and I walked downstairs to meet them, with me propping him up. Hey, phenomenal job, Theo said with a grin, putting his rifle aside to give us a slow clap. I didn't expect you two to survive that, calling me impressed. I had a whole assortment of colorful words to lay down on him, but I abstained. Couldn't risk upsetting him, not when we were out of ourselves and at his mercy. He could just as easily dispose of us as he could help us. So, is it a yes or a no? Are we in? You're in alright. He sat and turned to leave. Boys, finish up here. You two, follow me. Theo led us from our building to Black B, and as soon as those doors opened, we could tell that it was a completely different world from what we had grown used to. No cells aligning the walls, no bare concrete, no madness. It looked like a normal hotel more than anything. Feeling carpet beneath my feet after so long nearly brought me to tears. You never realize how much you miss these little things until they're ripped away from you. Anyway, Theo took us to the infirmary, because they apparently had one of those as well. They'll give you a quick checkup to make sure the two of you are fine. Then you can rest until morning. He turned to leave, but I stopped him. As the only person from Block B that I sort of knew and trusted... I would have liked for him to stick around. Where are you off to? Still got work to do, 
he said halfway out the door. But don't worry, you're in good hands with these guys. I somehow doubted that. But I went on Theo's word until now, so I had little choice but to keep that up. The doctors examined us and one even tried to make small talk, but we wouldn't budge. Just kept our mouths shut in case it was a test. I needed some stitches and bandages, nothing major. But Mason would need at least a few days to rest. Like I had suspected, he hadn't broken any bones, but the bruises were huge and he had pulled a few muscles. When they were done with us, they led us to our rooms. Plural, since we wouldn't live together. They weren't anything fancy by a long shot, but hey, they weren't prison cells either. I went to bed right away, falling asleep fast after the madness that I had been through. Theo woke me up in the morning with Mason already at his side. Come on, I have to break the two of you in. He showed us around Block B and it was overall much better than our previous dwellings. It had a canteen with tables to eat at, a gym, a small library with approved books I was sure I wouldn't frequent. The showers were still communal though, but I didn't really care. After, he got us new orange jumpsuits. Theo led us to said showers to clean up. I'll join you. Last night was a doozy and dust sweated like a hog. All three of us got stark naked and entered. No one else was there and we had the whole place to ourselves. So I went to find a shower a little distance away from the two of them. But Theo stopped me with a hand on my shoulder. He didn't say anything. But by the look in his eyes, I knew he meant business, so I followed. He picked out three showers all the way in the back of the room and turned them on full blast. We have to make this quick. They monitor how much time we spend in here. Theo said all of a sudden. Keep your voices down. Block B is bugged completely. But the shower room isn't. Too much moisture. Closest bug is at the door. You said you had plans for us, so for the sin, Mason demanded. He was still wobbly on his feet, and the bruises looked much worse now that some time had passed. You two said you'd want to get into Block C and find out the truth. Theo pointed out. Well, I know the truth and it sucks. We have to stop it, but I need help and I can't do it on my own. That's where you two come in. So tell us then, I said. No time, you'll see. And what would you need from us? Mason asked. For the meantime, survive. Keep your head down, so I'm trying to dig up some info, but it's not easy. We looked at each other contemplating this new wrench thrown into our plans. It was too little information to go off of, but once again I felt like I had no choice but to face the music. Theo had picked us specifically for this, and although he didn't share his plans yet, the mere fact that he had any in the first place could be enough to screw him over if we ratted him out. If we didn't accept his terms, if we didn't play along, we were liabilities to him, and in here, liabilities weren't tolerated. Fine, I said and turned to Mason. He didn't say anything. Dude, I only want to find one thing out, he told us. Is my brother still alive? Theo's somewhat relaxed expression up to that point turned somber. He's been sent to Block C. I think so. I haven't seen him in either A or B. I hate to break this to you, but... Theo didn't finish his sentence. Didn't need to. Mason slammed his fist into the wall and started sobbing slipping slowly against it to his knees. 
We had both known it. Chris and his brother were long dead, but we wanted confirmation. Needed confirmation. Yet now that we had it, I was afraid it would break him. I still need an answer. Theo pushed him. I'm in alright. Mason said, gritting his teeth between sobs. I'll kill whatever's down there. Then I'll kill the people that sent my brother here. Theo smirked. Good luck with that. And we washed up in silence, got dressed, and went to grab breakfast. Since we knew the place was bugged, we didn't speak much. Instead, we allowed Theo to guide the conversation, since he was more than likely privy to the no-no topics. So, what did you two do to land you in here? He asked us after we sat down. And we answered him, and he batted an eye when he heard my story. But I couldn't care less. He was here too, so he wasn't a saint either. You really did that. Yeah, well, what did you do? He sighed, dropped his spoon, and leaned back in his chair. One of his knees bumped the table hard enough to rock it, and I heard something cracking beneath it. I used to be a pastor. A man of faith had quite the congregation. Loyal people ready to follow me to the end. We left the town that we had all grown up in and started our own, away from civilization. I was sure that it was about to collapse any day now. And let me guess, you turned it into Waco 2.0 before the feds busted you. My remark had upset Theo, but he continued. No, of course not. We didn't do anything, we were peaceful. Didn't even have guns. We were sure the Lord would watch over us, until he didn't. So what? They just wiped you out for no reason? Mason asked. Yeah, pretty much. They spotted some BS about inciting violence, rebellion. But they were all lies. I think I had seen something like that in the news. I pointed out. Would have made all the papers and news channels for weeks. Theo chuckled, but it was dry. A hollow gesture. It would have. If anyone was left alive by the end to say something about it. We were only a few dozen families. Deep enough in the wilderness that no one even knew where to find us. We wanted to ask him more questions, but he didn't entertain us any further. He got up from the table, took his tray, and turned to leave. I used to be a man of faith. But after all that, and after I got in here, after I saw what lurks in Block C, I couldn't. The only God is the thing down there, and it wants us all dead. Well, that's ominous. Mason blurted. You'll see for yourselves when the time comes. He left us after that, and I'll admit, he really made me doubt our plan. Who the heck just drops those kind of bombshells on others so casually? We were up against a god. I hated to be that guy, but I started thinking that maybe whoever ran the show was right. That maybe keeping it contained out here away from everyone and everything was the right call. If the freaking US Army couldn't kill it... What could us three stooges do besides making it worse? But I kept my mouth shut, of course. Didn't say a word to anyone about my doubts. If things went south, I could always jump ship and side with whoever I thought was right. It took Mason and I a while to get used to this new lifestyle. All of a sudden, we had a lot more options and freedom at our disposal. But we didn't know what to do with it anymore. I took after the others. Hitting the gym most days to get in shape for what awaited us. Mason did the same and to my surprise, he frequented the library as well. My best guess is that escapism helped him.
There was one thing that didn't change, however. The weight, the anticipation. Living in two-month intervals between events. We hadn't talked much to Theo by the time the next one hit. Only enough to know what roles we were supposed to play. Apparently, we wouldn't be getting any guns just yet. For the meantime, we were on cleaning duty. Theo and his guys would go out first when the events ended, finding and picking up any stragglers. Then they would escort us around to tidy up the mess and take care of the bodies. We passed a few events like that, three or four I think, and I'm sorry I just skipped through such a long portion of time, but literally nothing interesting happened. Well, nothing more interesting than what came before anyway. It was boring grunt work. Rake the sand in the yard to cover the blood, carry the bodies of downed creatures to hatch in Block C's side, and whatever else Theo had asked of us. Life wasn't the best by a long shot, but it sure as heck beat how we had it in Block A. It was decent and I could get used to it. My best guess was that we were waiting for some of Theo's men to die in order to take their place on his team. They were the only ones with guns, but they could only take them during events. That chance arose during the fifth event that we had as part of Block B. It started out normal like all the others. Theo brought us out after his team checked everywhere and made sure that it was clear. Blocks A and C were locked back up, and we had a few dead monsters to take care of in the yard. A couple by the walls and some more scattered about. The standard procedure was to chop them up into manageable pieces with handsaws since the hatch that we dropped them down into wasn't large enough to fit a man. Two or three of us would work on a single monster, but it could be fewer if there were a lot of them. Mason and I intended to team up for that. We had understandably grown close even if you couldn't tell at first glance, so we did this time as well. He got to work on the legs, leaving me with the arms and head if the creature had one, which this one didn't. It was a roundish torso with a gaping mouth filled with broken ribs that looked like teeth. When we got into position, Mason struck his saw into one of its knees and the thing shuddered. Again, something that happened from time to time. They would play dead to fool us. Theo and Co. were supposed to double tap all of them just to make sure. And Roundy did have two holes in it. But like how do you take something out without a brain? I didn't get to warn Mason or call for Theo. As soon as Mason saw broke skin, Roundy shot a leg out and pushed Mason away. It swatted an arm at me, but I dodged and took off around it. Yo, we got a live one. Two of Theo's men escorted us to keep us safe, and they lingered close by, smoking and chatting. Roundy took off towards them, but my warning caused them to turn and see it. One dropped his cigarette from his lips and froze. The other one brought up his rifle and let loose a few bullets. They hit Roundy and went right through it, but failed to take it down. The guy kept shooting while his pal turned tail and ran. Roundy reached him in an instant, clamping his fake mouth around his torso. The man twitched and his bones let out a sickening crunch as Roundy bit down harder. A moment later, his body fell away, cleaved in two. Roundy raised its uh, face, its fake torso mouth up in the air, bucking back and forth as if struggling to swallow. I reached Mason and checked on him. Hey, you good? Yeah, it only pushed me away. Awesome, let's get out of here. There was no point in us fighting. That's not what we were there for. 
We had to run away and survive. The guy that ran off would alert Theo and the others and they would... Uh, a scream. I turned my head around as I bolted, finding the man halfway down round his gullet as well. I bit down into him, finishing him off, his feet twitching for a moment before life had left him. Roundy spat out what it couldn't swallow and took off after the next closest prey. Us. We have to kill it, Mason said. How? I don't know, but we have to. We have to come up with something. How the heck did I end up as the brains of this operation? And more importantly, what the heck could we even do? Those two guys had rifles and it did them little good. We only had bone saws for Pete's sake. I lifted mine as I ran, looking at these small, sharp teeth lining it. That's it. Cut the limbs. What? Cut the limbs, I repeated. You're crazy. Well, if you have a better idea, let me hear it. Mason shot me a glance and stopped arguing. The better idea would have been to keep running, but Roundy was faster than us by the looks of it. Help was maybe a minute away tops, yet we both doubted that we could escape it for that long. How do we do this? Mason asked. Split up. It'll follow one of us till the other one rushes back and in strikes. These aren't freaking swords, you know. Mason protested, swinging the saw around. Yeah, so hit it harder. The wall was coming up, and we did as I said. Mason went to the left, and I went to the right. Roundy collided into the wall, then bounced back like a ball before picking me and taking off again. Mason! I needed to stop it somehow, to buy Mason time to swoop in. It was risky, but I had no other choice. So I stopped and swiveled on my heels, getting face to face with Roundy. It opened its mouth, wide enough for me to see the top of its head that it had just swallowed and jumped. I dashed away as well, getting low to the ground and tackling its legs. Roundy collapsed next to me and thrashed around, still trying to get its teeth into me. Legs, I screamed. Mason jumped and struck with the saw on his way down. It got Roundy in the pit of the knee, tearing through skin and cartilage before stopping at bone. Mason let go of the saw and stomped at it with his boots, driving it in further. Run, he yelled, leaving the saw behind. Roundy was getting back up, so it wasn't a bad idea, but I saw an opportunity and decided to seize it. I let it get on all fours and then kicked its wounded knee with all my strength. It was enough to break it completely and render it useless. Roundy was slower, but all around more angry after that stunt. It still chased after us, bonding like a dog on three feet. Mason and I split up again, but it took after me once again. Not good since I the only saw left. Take it in hurry, I screamed at Mason, throwing the saw behind me over my head. I landed in the sand for Mason to take. I let Roundy around some more and when I decided I bought Mason enough time, I turned to face it again. This time I couldn't trip it or get away between its feet. It was too low to the ground for that. So instead I vaulted over it, hoping to make it behind Roundy. But it buckled and got up halfway through the jump, and still in the air I ended up on its back. It screamed and I screamed. I'm pretty sure Mason did as well. With my feet right beside its mouth, Roundy turned madly from side to side, spinning in place as it tried to catch them. I had never been to a rodeo. I hadn't even ridden a horse, let alone a bull. 
but I was pretty sure this was close to the genuine thing. Mason, do something. Get it down somehow. Yes, if I didn't figure that much out myself. I was growing dizzy, slowly slipping off with nothing to hold on to. But that was my only chance. I couldn't do anything while straddling Roundy. So I pushed myself off and still in the air, shot a foot at its other leg. Rowdy lost its footing and shot off again, propelled by its hand. It landed in the sand mouth first, still screeching. Mason dashed in and so did I on all fours. He struck Rowdy in its other leg, missing the knee pit this time, but I was right behind him to help add some damage. Mason let go of the saw and ducked and I vaulted over him, landing on the saw with both feet. It didn't go through the bone, but it was enough to break it and render the limb useless. Okay, let's go. I grabbed Mason's hand and took off towards Theo and Co. Roddy could follow us all that he wanted. With only its hands to use for crawling, it wouldn't catch up. We led it to the firing squad. Five men side by side with their rifles ready and Theo leading them. Get to the ground, Theo yelled. We jumped on our bellies and a harpy later. Streaks of hot lead passed above our heads. They let loose all they had, emptying their clips and turning Roundy to shreds. Brain or no brain, it couldn't survive so many holes. Thank God, I stuttered, turning on my back to face these guys I caught my breath. What the heck happened? Theo had asked us. We gave him the breakdown, told him that he was two men short now, and then we went back to our duties. Such was life. No time to slow down and process things. We retrieved our saws and we butchered what was left of Roundy to get rid of it. And yeah, we found the heads in its stomach. But those had to go as well. Anyways, we continued without other incidents and wanted to hit the showers when we were done. You know, to clean all that mess off us. But Theo stopped us and had us wait for everyone else to go first. So we would have the place to ourselves. What is it? I asked him after we turned in the showers and got under the streams of cold water. I just lost two men, so I'll propose the two of you as replacements, he answered. With what you pulled back there, I don't think they'll argue. So we'll get rifles, Mason asked. Yup. And then what? You said you're waiting for some info, and did you get it? Not yet, but I guess I can share the rest of the plan with you guys. And so share he did. Although he didn't have time to go into the details, he told us only the gist of it. This place was apparently built on top of a sprawling cave system. It spanned miles and miles of ground all around the prison, and it had many entrances, but they had blocked all of them off, all save for the one below Block C. The prison started out as a military compound in the 60s, and they did whatever the heck they did down there. And when these things started showing up, they slowly changed things to what they are today. I'm waiting for a map of that cave system so we can go in there and kill it at the source. So you don't actually know what's in there. You said you'd been to Block C, I pointed out. To Block C, yeah, Theo answered, but not down into the caves. No one's entered them in decades. Well, screw us. Indeed. Theo agreed. But we got this far, we have to try. I have a few more guys on our side, seven of us in total. 
I'll get the maps, wait for another blackout event, and we'll go down there while the monsters are topside. And that was it for our talk. No more time for anything else. We had to finish and get out before anyone suspected anything. Lots of questions were left unanswered and I didn't like that, but I couldn't do anything about it. All I could do was hope that it would all be worth it in the end. I'll skip ahead through some more boring parts, but we got accepted. Theo broke the news to us a week later and nothing really changed. We didn't get special treatment or training, not even keys to the weapons locker. Theo would hand those out while the blackout events were going down. We got a few of those as part of Theo's team, but Mason and I stuck together and watched each other's bags. Maybe someday in the future I'll tell you some of those tales, assuming that I'll survive for that long. For now though, I'll skip them. They're not relevant or even that exciting to be honest. With firepower at our sides and teamwork, the monsters were all of a sudden much less threatening. But time went by and shortly after the two-year anniversary of my incarceration, Theo finally got what he waited for. Also, short tangent, yeah, the title is a bit misleading. I spent two years and a handful of months in there, but sue me, close enough. At any rate, Theo didn't show any of us the maps, couldn't risk bringing them out or bringing us to his room. He just assured us that he had memorized them, and that he would be the last of us to die. What if you're not, though? What if you die first? I took a jab at him. Well, in that case, you're all screwed either way. If the monsters take me down, you lot don't stand a chance on your own. He teased with a grin. And that was that. All that was left was to wait for the next blackout event and pray. To whom, I don't know. I'm not much of a believer, but I prayed. Anxiety levels rose across the board as the days passed. Not even Theo was immune. He tried to put on a facade to act normal like it didn't get to him, but we could all see. And then it hit, a whole week too early. The events weren't clockwork precise by any means. It wasn't two months on the dot, but we experienced discrepancies of only a few days at most up to that point. It caught us off guard and it sent us scrambling. Theo gave everyone the guns and usually we were supposed to wait until the monsters had retreated. But this time we couldn't do that. No, we had to go out in the thick of it and secure Black Sea under the cover of the mist. That was the first part of the plan and the one that I liked the least. The seven of us who were in on it tensed up, waiting for Theo's signal. Roll out. The others who outnumbered us two to one by the way were confused as Theo threw open the main doors of Block B. What are you? One of them started complaining. Theo brought up his rifle and just shot the guy. Yeah, that's why I didn't like this part, even though I understood the logic behind it. We were outnumbered, and they had good incentives to stop us. Anybody that posed a threat had to be dispatched. The bang and the sound of the body hitting the floor sent us all into a frenzy. Some ran, others screamed. A handful raised their rifles to retaliate against the sudden betrayal. We ran out that door and into the mist with gunfire at our backs. It was bad. One of our guys only made it a few steps into the courtyard before a bullet ripped through his chest. 
So we were already down a man before the operation proper even began. Keep running, Theo screamed. And so we did. Crazy as we were, none of us were crazy enough to stop. We made it to Block C, shooting behind us every now and again and wasting precious ammo. The others made it inside. So Theo and I pulled the doors closed behind us and locked us in there. He opened his jumpsuit to retrieve a lock, and I saw a square block wrapped in paper tied around his torso. Plastic explosives. Hey, what in the heck? I yelled, taking a step back. Oh, what, these? Theo said, fanning out his jumpsuit the rest of the way and turning to face the others. You didn't think we would manage to kill whatever's down there with rifles, did you? I told each and every one of you, this is a death mission. Some of the others dragged their feet at the unexpected turn in the plan, but Mason approached Theo and stood it aside. With a heavy sigh, I did the same. He was right, we knew from the very beginning that we would die, and we had accepted that fact along with his offer. I wouldn't back out, and anyways, I needed to be down there, to hopefully put an end to this if I needed to. I'm a scumbag, always was and always will be, but I won't put my hate ahead of the fate of humanity. Whoever doesn't want to follow stay back here, Theo said as he clipped the lock in place and secured the doors. But once the monsters return and the other guys catch up, you'll die anyway. You'll follow us down there one way or another. I'll take my chances here, someone spoke up. Yeah, me too. Count me out as well. And that was that. In a single moment, our group got split down the middle. The other three guys backed out, leaving only Theo, Mason, and me. At least buy us some time, Theo said and took off. We followed him further into the building, into the thick mist that wouldn't let us see for more than a few feet in any direction. Just like last time, a light from deeper within made all of it shine, and I had my heart in my throat as I waited to see what exactly it was. The ground beneath our feet turned soft and squishy at some point, so I looked down. Flash, pulsing and shifting in a steady rhythm, overtaking the concrete. What the heck? I complained. Yeah, I better get used to it, Theo said. It's like that the whole way down. And disgusting. Mason commented on the matter as well. The ground sloped steadily at first and then more abruptly. Some ten feet later or so, as we had reached the center of the room, it turned into a pit. Mason nearly walked right into it. But I shot forward and grabbed a hold of his jumpsuit. That's the entrance. Theo pointed out the obvious. Awesome, now how do we get down there without breaking our necks? He slung his rifle around on his back and got down on all fours. The tips of his fingers probed the flash, pushing into it and tearing it apart. I expected a blood or something. I'm not sure, but nothing like that came out. It parted around his fingers and reformed as soon as he had pulled them out. Theo went over the edge slowly, striking with his feet and hands to create holds as he descended. Don't just stare. Come on. I flinched but got down on all fours and backed up into the pit. The whole thing was disgusting. The flesh squirmed around my fingers and boots, but it was also illuminating. In more than one way, this is what the monsters needed the prisoners for. Above us, Mason hesitated for a moment, 
What, you gonna chicken out? I asked him. He shook the shell-shocked expression off and followed without a word. I was sure that this was painful for him to see. Heck, his brother was likely a part of it. But it couldn't be helped and we were on the final stretch. We descended for what felt like hours, though it was only minutes at most. The mist somehow turned even thicker, making the air stuffy and warm. I felt the liquid building up in my lungs the more that I breathed it in. We had to move fast. Solid ground. Theo let us know from below. Well, more or less. I reached him first and stopped to catch my breath as we waited for Mason. The climb wasn't at all that tiring, but the oxygen levels likely plummeted because of the mist. I got on my hunches, hands on my knees as I pulled in deep inhales, and came face to face with, well, a face. A human face, eyes closed, mouth agape, chin bobbing from side to side as it let out a low hum. Strands of light and puffs of mist left its throat every now and again, rising and dissipating as it mixed in with the rest. I wanted to puke right then and there. I was breathing that stuff in. What the heck? Theo said it out of the blue. I moved, finding him face to face with another face. The word face will lose all of its meaning by the end of this, I'm sure of it. Mason reached the ground as well and stepped right into a face too. And then we found another one and another one. Dozens of them lining the floor and walls. We didn't say anything about it. None of us had any words left in us. Above us, on the ground floor, the sounds of gunshots and pounding on the main door had started up. Let's go, we're wasting time, Theo ordered. Mason and I fell in line behind him and he led us deeper into the cave, hand on the wall to his right to keep his bearings straight. More faces aligned the walls, some barely visible contours while others still had necks and even torsos. None were alive anymore by the looks of it just reanimated by whatever the heck this place was. You know, I've been thinking. Theo mumbled at some point. Don't play coy, tell me about what, or shut the heck up. He chuckled. I lost my faith in God a long time ago. Been in here for about a decade now, and each blackout event, it slowly chipped at it until there was nothing left. Until my faith was hollowed out and it crumbled away. At first, I tried to hold on to it. When I survived six events back to back on the ground floor, I thought it could be nothing else but divine intervention. What are you getting at? Being down here seeing this stuff, I'm starting to think that it might have been divine intervention after all. All of it. Surviving for so long, climbing the ranks, meeting the two of you. Maybe it was all for a reason. For us to see this to the end and put a stop to this. I'm glad for you, buddy, I told him. Now, if you're a believer again, start praying real hard for us. We'll need all the divine intervention that we can get. I've been finding God throughout this entire experience. Mason chimed in from the back with what I assumed was a joke. Yeah, well, let's hurry up. Those doors will only hold for so long and I don't want to be alive when they give. Let's. Theo agreed and picked up the pace. We couldn't exactly run or even jog, but we hurried as best as we could. The caves got narrower the deeper we went, likely a result of the layer of flash getting thicker. What were we even looking for? I asked. The main cavern, Theo answered. Not sure what's in it. 
My contact just said it contains the Saurus. Great, fantastic. What if it's a huge monster, a queen of sorts? Well, that's what I have these for. Theo said and patted his impromptu bomb vest. If it's a monster queen, I'll start the timer and let it swallow me. Then what the heck are we here for? Mason asked. Backup snacks, Theo joked. The pounding in the door was almost inaudible at that point, but we could still make it out ever so slightly. It left me wondering what went down up there. Were those three guys still alive? What about the others and what about the monsters? You know, speaking of explosives and backup snacks, it might be a better idea to split them up just in case, Theo said. He opened his jumpsuit fully and pulled out a few blocks free, handing them to us. Careful with them, they're not C4. If you trip and fall, you're toast. Then keep them, I said, shoving them back at him. I said be careful. We argued some more as we kept walking, but in the end, we kept them. We couldn't risk playing hot potato with high-yield explosives. I wasn't sure how we would even detonate them if push came to shove. Theo had the main charge, but he assured us that even slapping them hard enough would set them off. The knowledge that I could turn into human confetti and spread over a wide area at a moment's notice, it didn't set me at ease, however. Well, at least it would be a painless way to go, Mason said. Better than the alternative. Another bang came from up there, one loud enough to reach us. They're through, Theo said, color draining from his face. Without another word, he broke out into a sprint. Well, not exactly, more of a waddle through in knee-deep water, but you get the idea. He hurried up. We did the same, careful to not trip and fall. How much further? Uh, we're nearly there. And nearly there we were, as the cave started widening again. The only problem was that the monsters were nearly upon us. The slaps of deformed hands and feet on flesh were distant at first, but they approached fast. Unlike us, they knew the place and they also didn't have bombs to babysit or worry about. Well, I guess this is as far as I'll go, Mason said all of a sudden. He stopped walking and placed his blocks in the ground and raised his rifle. Come on, man. Don't mess with me. Don't do this. What's the matter? You two will die in a minute as well, he said. Just go. I'll buy you some time. Kill some of the things and collapse the cave on them. He was right. But that didn't mean I had to like it. Guess I'll see you down below, buddy. I said and turned to leave, fighting back tears. Yeah, I'll keep your seats warm. Don't keep me waiting. And we split up, so Theo and I rushed ahead. It didn't take long for gunshots to erupt behind us and each bullet fired. I felt like it ripped straight through my heart. I liked the guy okay, I'm allowed to. But it didn't last for long. A more powerful bang had followed. The shockwave rippled through the air and shook the cavern. Ah, I let out through clenched teeth. Let's hope it worked. According to the map, this is the only entrance. If Mason collapsed it, we're safe. The ceilings kept rising and the walls spread further apart until they weren't visible anymore. After the chaos behind us ended and the world settled down, we could hear the monsters scratching at something. Loud thuds and thumbs. Mason did collapse the cave, but they were clearing the blockage to reach us. He bought us some time, but little of it, so we couldn't waste it. We're here, Theo said, 
the main cavern. And there's nothing. Great, what now? No, it's here all right. He said and pointed at our feet. I looked down and my eyes landed on what looked like a black vein embedded into the flash. It pulsed with light but didn't move. I gave it a probing push with the tip of my boot and found out that it was solid. Rock, Theo said, bending down to get a closer look. He ran his fingers over it and broke off a small, sharp piece that cut his palm. Obsidian, let's follow it. We did so, heading towards the middle of the cavern as the obsidian vein grew thicker. Before long, we left the flash behind entirely, stepping onto the shiny field of volcanic glass. This is wrong. It's not native to this place, Theo said. No volcanoes for hundreds of miles around here. Maybe it's ancient. Maybe. Ancient or not, it was here. And it went up into a gentle slope until we reached stairs carved out from it. The whole situation gave me some creepy, otherworldly vibes. Perfect white as far as we could see above our heads, and pitch black below our feet. The contrast somehow messed with my mind in a way that I can't describe. There, I think that's it, Theo said from a few steps ahead. I rushed to his side and froze. We were on the very top of the obsidian pile, but I hesitate to call it that. More of an altar than anything else. It was circular, some ten feet in diameter, and blacker than the night. Blacker than obsidian had any right to be. Symbols that I couldn't understand were cut out of it, and a language either ancient or alien altogether. Each one shined faintly in different colors. A ritual? Yeah, Theo agreed. Let's blow it up. Let's. He turned on the timer and started taking off his vest. The area was a bit bigger than expected. We had to spread out the explosives to make sure all of it would be destroyed. The sounds of boulders being moved stopped, so I watched our sex. We'd hold our ground up there for as long as possible, until the explosives would go off. That was the plan. But then the monsters started rushing in, the pitter-patter of feet first on flesh and then on solid ground, silhouettes dancing through the mist, like sharks on the prowl through water. I started shooting first, mostly pot shots, but I heard yelps once in a while. Hurry up, I can't hold them back on my own, I yelled at Theo. Almost done, but I have to be careful, he screamed back, laying down blocks on the other side of the altar. One wrong move and I'll set these off. I wanted to ask him, so what, to tell him that that was the plan and better to set them off early than not at all, but I didn't get to. With my back turned, one of the monsters rushed past me. In the blink of an eye, it bodied Theo and carried him off his feet. The vest was off and the rest of the explosives dropped to the ground, so I held my breath as I watched them in slow motion. I honestly expected that to be my last breath, but they didn't go off. No bang. Other bangs did come though, along with Theo's screams in the distance as he fought off the monsters. Jack, shoot the explosives. I raised my rifle and aimed at them, but I couldn't. Ready as I thought myself, the survival instinct overpowered me. With my fingers shaking on the trigger filled to the brim with regret, I turned tail and ran. 
Monsters piled Theo until his scream stopped and I ran. Away from the altar, away from the timer, in no particular direction except away. When they followed me, I shot at them. I shot at them and downed them until the rifle clicked as the clip had emptied. I reloaded on the move and ran fast, first into the cavern wall. And then I shot some more, but I couldn't keep it up forever. They would overwhelm me. Then in an act that finally put the faith of God in me, the timer ran out and the explosives went off. Hard enough to burst my eardrums and deafen me to this day. Hard enough to dissipate the mist. Hard enough to turn the altar into a crater. I put my hands up to protect my face from the heat wave, but it burned through the jumpsuit. But still, I somehow survived all of that. I guess God has a twisted sense of humor. The monsters dropped like flies all around me, writhing in agony as they died and the whole world fell silent. I waited for a while, simply existing and breathing, as I tried to come to terms with what had happened and the role that I had played in it. I should have died like the others, but here I was. When even the flesh beneath me started to wither away, turning into a disgusting mulch, I got up. Still, I had my rifle and the flashlight that came with it, along with the explosives that Theo gave me and a few clips of ammo, so I would put them to good use. Couldn't go back the way I came. They'd destroy me, but I could maybe find one of the blocked off exits that Theo had mentioned and clear it. So that's what I did. I searched through the dark for what felt like days, getting further and further away, until I found a slab of concrete instead of a wall. The explosive did do the job, and with my hearing already compromised, I didn't even have to worry about it. It blew a hole through the blockade and into the desert surface, and I came out some five miles away from the prison in the middle of the night. They likely had heard the bang, but by the time they mobilized and came to look for me, I was long gone. And that's what I've been doing since then. Keeping on the move and staying on the run. Trying to remain one step ahead at all times. Not sure why there's nothing left for me out here. They did a great job of scrubbing my existence from the records. And I can't rely on anyone either. What little family I have left is better off without me. And I had a few friends, but none of which were close enough to give a crap about me. So yeah, I'm not sure why I even decided to share all of this. It's not a plea for help, or a warning of sorts. More just me screaming my sorrows into the void. Hoping that I'll get some form of release and maybe just get some gears turning while I'm at it. To preserve Chris's, Mason's, and even Theo's memory. I don't really have answers, just questions. Theories and nightmares of fog-filled caves lined with human faces. But keep your heads up. Maybe we'll cross paths again someday. The one thing that I learned from all of this is that you never know what the world will throw at you, for better or worse. I Hunt Monsters from Outer Space Written by Crone Johnson Bright displays on the control panel provided enough light for the entire cockpit. Walded scrap metal kept the ugly, asymmetric vessel from splitting into rusty pieces. 
Bright lights mounted on curved railing illuminated the starless darkness of outer space. Orbited by debris and clouds of junk, an enormous monstrosity came into view. Forests of crooked antennae protruded from the spherical space station. Edge lights marked hundreds of entrances on the surface. Blast doors parted, allowing me to enter a dimly lit tunnel network. After a few minutes of piloting, I had reached my destination. Hovering above docked spaceships, I emerged from the hangar ceiling. The deafening thrusters rotated as I landed near a platform. Doubling as a bridge, the airlock unfolded. I put a gray hooded raincoat over my clothes and I stepped out. The hangar's platform led to a large indoor public space with dozens of men, women, and children, all wearing boiler suits and helmets with mounted flashlights. The common sight of metal prosthetic limbs didn't phase a single person. Cracked rust exposed wires within the artificial body parts. Metal corridors with repurposed storage units serving as businesses and homes resembled streets. Densely set tents and vendor stands left a narrow pass to traverse. Constant chatter came from the crowds. With these ceiling lights shattered, the lighting solely depended on glowing neon signs, flashlights, and scattered lamps connected with cables on the floor. Smoke and dust contaminating the air further obscured these surroundings. I passed docked vessels and ship crews on my way out of the hangar. The locals ignored me. I stopped at an open storage unit with curtain doors. A neon sign pictured cartoonishly shaped fish and forks. Smooth jazz played. The curtains provided privacy for the patrons. I sat on one of the stools at the counter. With the exception of his stained apron, a man behind the counter wore the same attire as the locals. Two cables connected his left metal eye to a contraption on his temple. What will it be? He asked while typing on a hologram keyboard projected by his cell phone. I waited for him to finish texting. If you can't make up your mind, the menu is. The man froze when he looked at me for the first time. Is that? I smiled. In the flash. Turn, you're alive. The owner reached over the counter to hug me. Man, you reek. When I heard you started a business in illicit space, I had to see it with my own eyes. What happened was settling down. I didn't really get the chance. It's a long story. You didn't come all this way just to see me, did you? Oh, there is this small thing. I'm meeting up with someone for a job. Nothing big. Decided to visit my old pal, Vorney, while waiting for the guy to call, that's all. I hope it works out for you. Me too. You know, I helped you a lot back in the day. I haven't forgotten. Good times, right? Sure did you a lot of favors. You want something, don't you? What makes you think that? I just spit it out. My employer covered the dock slip, but I'm broke. You got any spare change? Not really. A warm meal. No freebies, sorry. Business policy. I can give you a 10% discount. Completely understandable. Although, a free meal would have been a good way to apologize, since you never got the chance to. 
I don't remember my best friend standing up for me in court when I got banished from our home world. Let's not dwell on the past. I'll get you something. A lifesaver, Warren, a lifesaver. Oh, uh, the trip here was long, too, and my ship's heating is broke. Do you have a roommate? Don't push it. All right, all right, fair enough. Vorney left a bowl and plastic spoon on the counter. Bits of synthetic meat floated in sludge. The carbon tuna delight. Enjoy. Thanks to my permanently damaged taste buds, I couldn't tell if it tasted good or not. The curtain door opened. Turn, I think someone's here to see you, Vorney said. A man sat on the neighboring stool. The dirty cloak that he wore partly hid an expensive suit. Sunglasses and a scarf covered most of his face. I recognized a silver ring on his finger. You must be Van Reith, I said. Nice disguise. I can only dream. I serve that great man. A muffled, raspy voice corrected me. Since I hired you, you do as well. Refer to me as Link because I am your link to him. Makes sense, Link. Share your opinion. What do you think of this place? Shockingly little violence. Expected a lot worse. Then you failed to do your homework. Destination Cross shines beyond the law's absurd immoral restrictions. Unlike other independent stations, we respect one another. Alright, I'm not the biggest history nerd. I know Van Reith is filthy rich, yet the guy chose to live in illicit space. Shockingly, the locals weren't armed, as far as I could tell. That's because we aren't criminals. Pirates are not welcomed. Over 80% of the inhabitants are refugees and victims of cataclysmic natural disasters. Destination Cross houses over 300,000 people. What started as a temporary haven for the unfortunate gradually transformed into a city. Generations of innocent lives have been saved. Throwing money away with no strings attached. Save the fairy tales for the kids. Keep any skepticism to yourself, mourner. Man, woman, or child, ask anyone on the station, and you will see the respect and love they have for Mr. Van Reith. Okay, he's a saint, I got it. I simply wanted you to be aware of what's on the line before we continue. People have been disappearing. Some of the inhabitants experience vivid, euphoric dreams. We check the air and water. Nothing. Ling placed a file on the counter. I went through a series of notes, sketches, and photos. Over 2,000 disappearances, I read aloud. 300 seen willingly disappear in abandoned utility tunnels. The station is filled with abandoned areas. All the disappearances and dreams occurred around the utility tunnels in the marked sector. Sector 17. Big area. I inspected a map. What you find in the tunnels... We assembled three security teams. None returned. I unfolded a wrinkled piece of paper. This, this right here. What's this? The first actual sighting of a potential perpetrator. An eight-year-old drew it while playing outside with his friends. All of them disappeared. Short, smiling stick figures representing children followed a tall stick figure towards a circle. The dreams, I continued reading. 
Each person dreamt of their own unique paradise. Refugees saw lost family members and a peaceful childhood home. Victims of fatal asteroid collision relived trips to mountains, to forests and beaches. Over 100 deaths due to overdose with insomnia treatment medication and varying methods to remain asleep. What do you make of this? A quarantine Sector 17. Unless they're me, nobody goes in or out. We've already quarantined the area. I'll inform the officers of your arrival. My assistant will help you find Sector 17. And don't bother, I prefer the map you've given. The sidekicks slow me down. In the end of the day, you are a dangerous criminal, and I prefer to have someone keep an eye on you. Fair enough. I gotta ask. I trust Vorn cause he's my pal. Why do you trust him? He heard everything. And the disappearances are no secret. We are one big family, we don't hide information. Especially in cases such as this. More fairy tales. So, where can I meet my trusty guide? Right here. Link handed me an earpiece and a slim device with a built-in camera. What's this? The question isn't what, it's who. Hello, you must be Turn. A female voice came from the device. My name is Lila and I am an artificial intelligence assistant tasked with aiding you in your mission. Her soft voice was indistinguishable from that of a human. An AI that doesn't want me dead. I'm always up for new experiences. I inserted the device in a holster on my chest. I'll take that as a compliment. Remember this, Link got up. Hiring you took a lot of convincing. Don't embarrass me in front of my friends and colleagues by doing something stupid. Hey, I don't bite the hand that pays the bills. Good. Your destination is in walking distance. Lila will inform me if you find anything. Enjoy your stay. Vorn, Link, I'll see you around. Vorny nodded. Don't get yourself killed, kid. I left the shop and began my journey. Hey, Lila, you there? I tapped the earpiece. Tell me, is any of this true? I am unsure if I understand your question. The happy family thing, I don't believe it. Hmm, I got you from Link, so you're probably programmed to agree with them. I'm not an item to be given. Link requested my help. I'm a person like you, and my opinions I hold are mine. Really? You have a favorite movie? Lila laughed. Are you testing me? What kind of primitive AI have you been interacting with up to this point in your life? Hey, my bad if I offended you, but still. With such a huge heart... Why doesn't Vanrith do something about the poor conditions here? He is a billionaire, isn't he? It's not that simple. Destination Cross is large in size. Yes, Vanrith is wealthy, but his resources aren't infinite. Dressed in black uniforms, security officers stood near fences with warning signs, which blocked the way to the tunnel. One compared my appearance to an image on his phone before stepping aside. I climbed over the barricade and entered an enormous circular hallway. Ladders connected three floors of makeshift huts constructed from scrap and cardboard. Sector 17. Is it usually this empty? Due to certain circumstances, the residents only come out when supplies are delivered. I followed painted signs and numbers. 
I knocked on a metal plate with an installed doorknob. Mrs. Meyer, could I speak with you for a moment? I apologize, sir. I can't let you in. A shaky voice answered. You don't have to. I only want to ask a few questions. Who, who am I talking to? Are you the mourner that they hired? You were expecting me. Everyone in Sector 17 is expecting you. The officers advised us to be cooperative. I trust them, so I'll trust you. I trust you to find out who took my husband. Your husband reported unusual dreams six days before he disappeared. Yeah, he never missed a work day in his life. The moment those dreams began, all he wanted was to sleep. He stopped going to work, he stopped talking to me. Yesterday I found two empty bottles of sleeping pills. Any idea where he might have gone? By the time I returned from work, he was already gone. My neighbor saw him enter the utility tunnels. There are many entrances, the closest being in the far end of Sector 17. They aren't locked yet. Why? Why would we do that? Our loved ones might return. The woman hummed a calming melody. You all right in there? I think I'll take a break. I feel tired. Goodbye, mourner. She is gone, Lila said. I stepped back. It's pointless. The victim's families are clueless. Time to see what we're dealing with. It didn't take long to find a hatch with a missing lid. Lila, the lid, where is it? Such problems exist due to poor maintenance. Nobody thought about a barricade. Many thought about it, actually. Workers welded broken hatches like this shot and they locked the functioning ones. Someone keeps removing the barricades. Security cameras capable of filming the culprit temporarily malfunction when it happens. Who has camera access? The few officers with access to this sector security system have been proved innocent, and traces of unauthorized access are yet to be discovered. When I'm done here, I'll look into the camera problem. I pulled out a thin rod and I switched it on. The flare emitted bright light. I climbed down the ladder. Following a map I found in the file, I ventured deeper. The flare illuminated narrow corridors and small chambers. Silhouettes of crooked pipes, tubes, and hanging cables resembled human figures at times. Lila, are you scared? It is preferable to concentrate on your task. We still haven't reached the area the security team lost contact. And that makes you feel safe. Not really. So is fear a thing with you? It's important to know. Of course it is. The limitations placed on me are to help connect better with you. His overriding information is also programmed. If by overriding you mean bravery, no. It wasn't programmed. I learned it just like you and any other human. You're very brave then. Nobody will help us if something were to happen in these tunnels. My consciousness is stored on a safely kept hard drive. This avatar is like a window. If the connection is severed, I won't die. You, on the other hand, have a physical body, I know. I stepped on something crunchy. What's this? To inspect it closely, I crouched. My boot had snapped a prosthetic arm. Judging by the bloody wires, it had been forcefully removed from its owner. 
Branching from limbs to organs, I discovered it varying cybernetic components. The deeper that I went, the more that I found. From all the various parts, I couldn't recognize identical bulky chaps. I rubbed a few clean with my sleeve. Coupled with a seven-digit number, I found the name Haven Van Reith Incorporated on each chap. Van Reith Corporation, Lila. You know what this chip does. It is a neural implant. I do not recognize the model and its function. I count at least a dozen. It must be a very popular product. Is that how your boss makes his money? Haven Van Reith Incorporated does not produce implants. They build rescue spacecrafts and work on evacuation programs. What's their logo doing here then? I don't know. A distorted bark made me jump. I dropped the chip and turned around. Leaning against the wall, a naked body laid in a crimson puddle. A ripped out prosthetic arm and leg left stubs. You came, the woman coughed. I knew, I knew my brother would send help. I will call the medics, Lila said. No, I stopped her. It's too late for her. The medics will only be risking their lives. You said it yourself. We haven't reached the area where the security team lost contact. Link hired me to help, so you'll listen to me. Don't call the medics. A red dot appeared on the wall. I slid between thick pipes before the laser stopped on my body. A deafening gunshot echoed through the utility tunnels. Embedded in metal, dozens of pellets dented the wall. Dust and bolts fell from the ceiling. You're cornered, a male voice stated. Reveal yourself. I couldn't rush the attacker, he was too far away. Unless you want the ceiling to collapse on us, I wouldn't shoot again. Good point. Emitting opaque gas, a canister slid across the floor. I held my breath. The goggles that I wore protected my eyes. The stranger didn't move. He waited. I needed to breathe. Covering my mouth with an arm, I coughed. My lungs and throat burned. I stumbled out of my hiding place and I collapsed. The stranger woke me up with a kick in the ribs. Handcuffed to a pipe, I sat on the floor next to the flare. A man in a beige hazmat suit aimed a shotgun at me. Segmented armor covered his suit, providing protection from physical threats. I recognized a familiar winged symbol on his chest. Didn't know the Boy Scouts are in town. I spat out blood. Don't you have futile protesting to do? The man kicked me again. A squirming slug. I despise all of you mourners. Really, I wouldn't have guessed. Mindless corporate minion. Are you here to wipe Ramsey's butt after his latest mess up? You know exactly what I'm here for. The disappearances aren't a secret. It's my job to save people. I thought you were all about that, activist boy. Lies. I expected nothing more. My trap wasn't meant for you. You were using that body as bait. Ice cold. Hey, keep talking. The louder the better. You're the new bait. But thanks to the gunshot, everybody and their mother knows that we're here already. A word of advice from an expert... Fights here aren't like those on planets. Firearms and blasters cause more problems than they solve. The walls are filled with useful systems. One wrong shot, we might not have air in the entire sector. 
Or maybe the artificial gravity will turn off. Who knows? I'll take my chances. Lila, you can call the medics now. Call security while you're at it. Lila. I realized that her avatar was missing from the holster. Nobody's coming for you. You know, I can survive a long, long time without food and water. How long can you go? What about your mind? Is the darkness chipping it away bit by bit? Slowly chewing your sanity. Does it bother you? It's hard to stomach this isolation, isn't it? Hear that? I paused. The voices of silence. Spend enough time and you'll hear them too. Listen carefully. You aren't breaking those handcuffs. If you try, the sensors will detect it. And I'll be here in seconds. I'll leaving already. We were just getting to know each other. The activist left me handcuffed to the pipe. I waited to make sure that he was gone. Maintenance teams had forgotten the abandoned utility tunnels. Years must have passed since the last repair. I felt the rusty pipe behind me. Metal screeched as it slowly bent. Clasping it with both hands, I leaned forward. With a loud pop, the pipe snapped off the wall. The activist had dragged me to an unknown place in the tunnels, but it couldn't have been far from where he had captured me. My hands were behind my back, but I could still pick up the flare. I searched for anything familiar. Hello? Anyone out there? Lila's voice sounded. Lila, where are you? I can hear you. Down here. Lila. I found the avatar on the ground, took it and resumed my search for the exit. Did he let you go? The stranger, he never took me. I fell while he was dragging you by the leg. You're covered in blood. Did you kill him? This? No, that's my blood. He handcuffed me and beat me up. And Don't worry, I escaped. How did he overpower you? Ling told me that mourners are strong. Don't you fight alien infestations? I do, and you know what I don't fight. Heavily armed extremists. Nothing on me is bulletproof and my weapons won't help in a firefight. He isn't that. I saw the symbol on his suit. He's a member of a famous activist group. Good for him. It is renowned for its credibility and many successes. If a member is here, they have a good reason. Did he tell you anything? He probably came to the same conclusion as me. Which is... Whatever is down here removes any cybernetic implants from its victims before taking them. The woman that we saw. It must have finished doing its thing, but for some reason it laughed. Pretty big chance that it would return for the body. The activist boy found the body before us and my guess is he waited for the killer to return. It's what I would have done. Thought that we were the culprit so he took his chance. And then he saw that I wasn't who he wanted and he laughed. What are you going to do? Escape, what else? Can't fight with my hands tied. Tell me if you recognize anything. All I can see is your back. I tripped over something causing me to drop all the items that I held. The flare bounced on the ground a few times before coming to a halt. I got up only to see a pale, sickly face. Encased in thick threads, dozens of bodies hung from the web. Constantly scanning my surroundings for enemies, I crouched down and whispered. Then walking deeper, Lila. I remember a big chamber on Link's map, and this must be it. I think I'm stuck. 
Lila said with an equally quiet voice. When I dropped her avatar, she had landed in the web. You're not the only one. I felt threads on my back. I pulled away, leaving my torn raincoat in the web. The worn-out boiler suit I wore below had multiple holes closed with water-resistant tape. Darkened by dried blood, the orange color and prisoner number were unrecognizable. I'll have to leave you here, Lila. You can return to another device and be fine. But I won't be able to help you. I memorized the map, and now that I know where this chamber is, I can find my way back. How will you do that without light? What do you mean? Oh, I remember the flare was stuck in the web as well. I could touch a sheath on my back, but the additional flares I carried were out of rage. Uh, Lila, this is bad. Oh, what now? Give me a moment, I'll think of something. The thing responsible for the webs could appear at any moment, and I couldn't fight or run. I remembered what the activists had said about the handcuffs. I repeatedly spread my arms as much as I could to simulate an attempt to break free. The handcuffs tightened automatically. Beeps coupled with red flashing lights gave away my location. I hoped that the handcuffs would send a silent wireless signal, rather than an alarm every living thing in the area could hear. Accompanied by a thud, the distorted bark I heard earlier sounded. I turned around to face the newly arrived opponent. Deep in the web at the end of the flare's range, a glossy shape moved, latching onto the rope-like threads with its sharp claws. A segmented body slithered towards me. I cracked my neck and took a deep breath. Obscured by poor lighting and shadows, the creature emerged from the web. Translucent tubes filled with a bluish ooze popped up all over its shiny body. Exposed areas on its metal exoskeleton revealed white muscles and cables. Multiple pairs of antenna wiggled. Six eyes resembling camera lenses blinked unevenly. The monstrosity stood up in its hind legs. I jumped, yelled, and kicked the air, hoping to be intimidating. The creature grabbed me by the throat with one of its four hands and searched my body. It used its other three arms to remove any metal items. Lightheadedness followed. Lack of oxygen would make me lose consciousness very quickly. I lacked cybernetic enhancements, so the monster went for the spare flares and the sheathed weapon. After throwing them to the side... It snapped the handcuffs with ease, freeing my hands. An ear-piercing ringing made the creature drop me. I had frantically searched for the source of the sound. Exhaustion kept me from standing up. Struggling to breathe, I coughed. The unbearable noise came from Lila's avatar. The creature tore the small device out of the web and crushed it in its palm. I placed my hand on the sheath as my strength had returned. Visibly enraged by the sound, the creature's barks turned to snarls. It no longer wished to trap me in the web and wanted to kill me. Preparing to pounce, the creature got on all six of its limbs and it leaped towards me. I unsheathed my weapon, simultaneously sidestepping to dodge the attack. I swung my machete. The sparks flashed as two arms in blue ooze flew into the air. The creature let out a prolonged, distorted shriek. Beneath the layers of artificial enhancements, I could hear an animal in pain. 
connected with cables, a tape, and bolts. A contraption in the back of my machete produced a constant hum. Emitting bright orange light, the glowing edge produced heat. Swinging its remaining arms in a frenzy, the creature attacked again. I ducked and sliced a leg off. The monstrosity dragged itself to the safety of the web. Cutting through the threads, I caught up and chopped the remaining limbs off. The seconds before the finishing blow, distorted barks and snarls came from all directions. Four creatures crawled out of the web. They approached, despite the hesitation caused by the heat and light. I held the machete with both hands and pulled the bottom. The handle extended. The blade unfolded, adding additional length and desiccated edge. Shrieks echoed through the utility tunnels. Pulp, limbs, and metallic flesh covered the ground. Drenched in blue ooze, I held on a button on the handle and swung at the air. The momentum triggered the mechanism inside the machete, deactivating the light. Its edge cooled down as the blade and handle retracted. Freeing him from the web, I cut the closest human loose. Can you hear me? I asked. The man blinked slowly. Is that, is that you, dear? No, who are you? Where am I? Hey, you'll be alright. Can you remember anything? Uh, I'm not sure what day is it. I was talking to my son. I, I want to go home. I led the small group of crippled and fatigued victims through the tunnels. Hobbling together those with two legs helped those with one or none. The group carried the extra flares that I had brought. One by one, I helped them scale the hatch ladder. What's going on? A security officer asked as I was leaving Sector 17. Send the medics. I left 11 survivors next to the hatch. Wait, where are you going? My ship. Locals stared at me on the way to the hangar. Link waited in front of my ship. Lila showed me the footage. You killed that thing, right? Along with its friends. There were more. I don't want you saying a word to anyone about it. Are these survivors stable? I asked a lot of questions while freeing them. They can't recall anything since the dreams began. Good. Let's go and have a talk somewhere more private. I want to know exactly what happened down there. You're on your own. Killed five of those creatures. Accept that as my apology for trying to leave without saying goodbye. You're leaving? But I don't care what progress you've made. If you don't complete the job I hired you to do, I'm not paying you. Don't expect you to. You're serious about giving up. What did you see that scared you? The man who recommended you told me that you were experienced and reliable. I'll ask you to move so I can board my ship. Link moved. Fine, run away, but I want to know why. I entered my ship and sat in the cockpit. Link followed. I see, I understand. You spent valuable time and got nothing. He placed an envelope on the control panel. This should cover the fuel you wasted in a night in a motel. In return, all I want to know is why you're quitting. I opened the envelope. Wasted a lot more fuel getting here. That's all you will receive. Alright, fair enough, I suppose. The creatures that attacked me. I know what they are. You've encountered them before. Not exactly. Ever heard of an animal called Kruvata? Is that what they were? Oh, far from it. The ones on this station are seven-foot monsters. The ones that I know aren't cyborgs and are less than a foot tall. Quite cute, actually. 
They live in the hives and eat small mammals. Where are you going with this? This case has genetic engineering written all over it. Are you accusing Destination Cross of creating those monsters? Your theory is ludicrous. Why would you even jump to genetic engineering? The Kruta in the wild are the small ones you know how they catch food. By releasing pheromones which basically make their prey feel very, very good. They don't hunt, they patrol their hive. And they shed the crap everywhere. Prey walks by, absorbs it, and starts thinking the hive is the best place in the galaxy. And get this, when they happily and willingly arrive, the Kruvtai encased them in a web. Lila showed you the footage, didn't she? You better not be making this up. The pheromones are a major ingredient in a widely used bait for small game. Completely harmless against humans or anything bigger though. There are Kruvta farms throughout the galaxy, so the little guys aren't that rare. But wait, there's more. The Kruvta web has healing properties to maintain the prey fresh. The monsters in the utility tunnels tore all cybernetic implants out of their victims. We're talking lethal wounds. I inspected the victims' bodies and matched these scars to their missing implants. I've seen genetic engineering, and I can say without a doubt somebody's making monsters. And by someone, you know who I mean. How dare you accuse Mr. Van Reith of such atrocities? Your words, not mine. Never mention any names, but it would be handy if you had the power to make anyone feel like they're in paradise, wouldn't it? I'm no businessman, but it might be worth a fortune. Maybe it's even worth to do a couple of shady experiments. I will not listen to a low-life mercenary make up lies. Oh, a big fan of his, aren't you? What do you think about the chips? What chips? I thought Lila showed you everything. Either she forgot or she's keeping secrets. I had to blame two of the chips that I found. Planned on keeping them as souvenirs, but I suppose it's better to leave them here. These neural implants were in each of the victims. And judging by these seven-digit serial numbers, you can do the math. Thought you should know. Are you implying something? They must be some kind of medical implant. Don't know how it's all connected. Not my place to find out. Especially if I want to stay alive. Tell Lila that I'm thankful that she saved my butt with the distraction. I activated the thrusters. About the chips. Link stepped out of my ship. Yeah? I pressed a button to close the door. Why would you assume they're malicious? The two chips that I gave you, I said as the door slowly closed. The second one wasn't extracted from a human. I didn't find it in the utility tunnels with the rest of the removed implants. I dug it out from a monster's brain. And that's going to do it for today's lineup. I hope that you all enjoyed the stories. Thanks so much for listening and thanks so much to today's sponsor, Upside. Download the free Upside app and use promo code MrCreeps to get 5 bucks or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. Again, that's $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more using promo code MrCreeps. I hope that you guys are having a great summer. It's getting pretty hot out there, so make sure you remember to stay hydrated. But even more important than that, remember to stay creepy.